Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. In this episode, we discuss Dune. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. Anthony here. And James here. We're finally going to do a full episode on Dune. We are going to Arrakis. Now, we've done a Everything We Know About Dune episode, which was before the release of the film. Then we did a spoiler-free 30-minute review of Dune. But this episode is going to be our normal spoiling, analyzing everything about the film Dune. And that review that we did, that was right after we watched the film. And we only we didn't dis- discuss anything in depth. Um, yeah, it was more of a reaction. Yeah, overview of how we felt about the movie. But we've both seen it three times since IMAX. Oh yeah, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and have, we've had a lot of time to think about this. We've been actually saving this so that enough people could have seen it on HBO Max as well as if they didn't get a chance in theaters because we didn't want to spoil it for anyone who couldn't make it to a theater. Well, and then it was on yeah. Amazon to rent, so you yeah. can rent it for 25 or buy for 30 Exactly. So, But now we think we're, we're ready to do a full review on this. It's going to be a real deal of what we say was the best film of 2021. Uh, it, will, it has been nominated for 11, no, 10, 10 Oscars. I believe it will win a bunch of technical categories. Like It, it will probably win production design, visual effects, sound, uh, score by Hans Zimmer. That's it, I think. Uh, I, hope, I, believe I, yeah. it'll, I believe it'll win four Oscars. And, you know, we were very disappointed to see Denis Villeneuve not get nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards. He got the BAFTA nom, but it was just kind of a surprise and a shocker because, like, when me and Anthony did our reactions to the Oscar nominations, we were like, if there was, like, a, a guarantee, like, this award's going to be in there, we figured Denis was a, was a lock for a nomination at least. But it's a bit unfortunate, and I'm sure, you know, just being nominated is amazing as it is. Anything that could happen to a filmmaker, but I'm sure he's fine with it, you know. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that for Denis, the opportunity to just make Dune was all the everything that he needed and asked for. You exactly. know, what I mean, same thing with Blade Runner. He didn't get nominated, but he was clearly probably the best director that year as well. Yeah, it's, he's a very special filmmaker. You know, he's in that class now. I would say of like Kubrick esque, like Chris Nolan's in there, and and just like this this century, he has dominated. The last 15 years, 20 years, you could argue that Denis Villeneuve is the best director of the century. I mean, Chris Nolan has made amazing films, Tarantino, so many great filmmakers. But when you look at his catalog and his filmography, he's put out such amazing films. And I can't wait for Dune Part 2 and what he's going to do with the future of his career because he seems like he's just in his prime right now. He's one of those filmmakers where every one of his films are, are really loved by fans. Like, they all have gigantic ratings on IMDb. They're all either over 8 or just under 8 with like a 7.8, 7.9. Like, Prisoners is 8.1. This is an 8.2. Um, Blade Runner 2049 is an 8. Enemies like a 7.8. Like people, Sicario. Yeah, Sicario, I believe, is an 8. So people really love his films. And it's not like he's a one-hit wonder. He's like every one of his films people adore. Arrival is another really great one. Yeah, he's just a very skilled director, tactician. He's very he's razor sharp. The technical qualities of his film are Kubrick-esque. And he's just transports you into a world like no other filmmaker really does these days. And Dune was his passion project. He's been wanting to do this since he was a kid, since he was like 11, 12 years old. He's been dreaming of Dune. He got into filmmaking, and he his lifelong goal was to make a movie about Dune. And we're just so happy that of all the filmmakers in the world, he was selected by Legendary and by Warner – well, by Legendary, and then the film was produced by Warner Brothers in the Herbert Group in 
family to direct the film. He was their first choice. Yeah, he had worked with Warner Brothers on Prisoners. Um, other Blade Runner was also Warner Brothers, so he's been working with the studio for a while. So he's familiar with the people who are handling the production of films, and so I'm sure he illustrated to the whoever was involved in uh, Thomas Toll, I believe, is the owner of Legendary. As well as I can't remember the other guy's name, but I'm sure he was like telling them whenever Dunes, whenever you get the rights back, or we, you guys want to make it. Like I'm sure he was like, tell me right away. Well, I know the story actually. Can you enlighten us? Well, let's begin with the original book, which was written by Frank Herbert and published in 1965. He went on to write six Dune books total, and then it was continued by his son Brian Herbert. He wrote prequels and later on later books, and he served as EP on the film. He's in charge of the estate, the Herbert estate, and everything. And Herbert got the idea about writing about sand dunes in Oregon, Oregon, and he found inspiration while he was there of this idea of the story of what Dune would become. And so studios, obviously, they made Dune in 1984, David Lynch's oh, so version. Can I stop you real oh, quick? Yeah, sure. I, re- I also read in the Dune book that you have. The Art and Soul of Dune. The Art and Soul of Dune. I read that uh, Frank Herbert, he was assigned uh, a journalism job because he was a journalist and a photographer. Um, and he had to travel, I believe it was to Oregon. Yeah, the Oregon Dunes. And then when he was flying, when he was done with his trip and flying home, um, when the plane was over the dunes, that's when he got the initial idea of a, a desert-like planet. And that was the first seed of his idea that he built from that. And then his experience in the Middle East and un- knowing a little bit about the cultures and the spirituality, that gave him the idea of a Messiah-like figure entering this desert-like planet. So those were the first nuggets of the idea of Dune. And this is an original, one of the original great sci-fi novels of the 20th century. I mean, this and Foundation, Isaac Asimov's books, are hugely influential in the sci-fi, influential in the sci-fi genre, especially Dune. There's no Star Wars without Dune. I mean, if you watch, like, people think, like, oh, Dune looks like a Star Wars movie. No, Star Wars looks like a Dune movie. Yeah, I mean, if you look, I mean, in this movie, the clearest example, I would say, aside from intergalactic travel, intergalactic um, civilizations and, you know, an empire, um, you know, one of the special powers that the Penny Jesuit possess, as well as Paul, is the voice. And the voice is, you know, this technique and this power that they have where they can command someone to do something, whatever they want, with the, the certain way they speak the words and this is literally jedi mind tricks you know people like jessica lady jessica and paul order people to do things and they don't even know they're doing it they just are doing it and this is exactly like when um um what's uh whose name obi-wan kenobi (laughs) and in a new hope Ghost of the Stormtroopers, these are not, not the, the droids, droids you're looking, looking for. for. It's the same thing as the voice in Dune. Yeah, very similar. Yeah. Obviously, a desert planet with two moons. Who would have thought that up twice, yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. And also, so another novel, novel predated um, Dune by many decades, and it was Edgar Rice Burroughs' Princess of Mars. And I believe that also may have, may have been a, a help, helpful guide for the Frank John Herbert. Carter books. The John Carter books. Or I can yeah. look up the published publication date. The twenties. I think the first one was in the twenties because he wrote Tarzan, and Tarzan's very old. Um, but he wrote Princess of Mars, that series, which is really fantastic. If anyone hasn't read those, nineteen twelve. Yeah, you would love those books, Jim. Yeah, I'll check you, them out. You would adore them. Princess of Mars. I'll, I'll is so, remember, I was reading them yeah, when yeah, the movie yeah. came out. Oh, they're so good. And I remember I saw the movie, and I was kind of disappointed The movie sucked. It. Yeah. The movie was... you said it was nothing like the book. It was nothing at all like the books. They ruined it. And so that and Dune were gigantic influences on George Lucas creating Star Wars. So Star Wars would not exist if it wasn't for those two novels. Whereas Denis Villeneuve nailed the book. The book 
to film adaptation. I don't think anyone could ever do it after I read the book, but like what Denis pulled off seems impossible. It's kind of like what he did with Blade yeah, Runner 2049. You know, and so the studio courtship began, you know, David Lynch made his 1984 version, which is, eh, man, it's an accomplishment for sure, 1984, but like it really doesn't even come close to capturing what's inside the book. Keep in mind, he, he did not have final cut on that movie in the studio over oversaw him in many of the aspects of the film so yeah, he i'm did, sure yeah probably so it's not what his vision was entirely and, but and then they turned in then someone made a children of dune tv show which actually starred james mcavoy as leto atreides and that is actually the third book of the franchise that herbert wrote and then the herbert state back in 2012 started like throwing out flyers to like try to get it adapted into a movie maybe make a new version of it and then it landed with legendary who's been who makes a ton of great films they made a bunch of christopher nolan and they've been collaborating with warner brothers for a big over a decade now like they've did inception in in movies like that and so in 2016 legendary was given the option to prop the option for to prop uh, what am i saying (laughs) the option for the films and property of the films to make movies about them Mm -hmm. and that same year Denis Villeneuve had been saying in interviews how it was his lifelong dream to make a Dune film. So I think he was in um, production or post-production on Blade Runner 2049 at the time in 2016 mm-hmm. because that probably wrapped in 2016 filming because it t- came on 2017. Yeah. And so I'm sure he was doing some press circuits and whatnot. And so then Legendary and the Herberts co- contacted him immediately. And within 15 minutes, they had their director for Dune back in 2016. And he hadn't even released Blade Runner 2049 yet. That's incredible. Because like, like I said, I'm sure that they knew he was very keen to helm an adaptation if they were ever going to produce one. And I think that... You know, if the if the rights for those for these stories can't got into anyone else's hands, any other studio's hands, uh, I don't think Denis probably wouldn't have been chosen, and I'm not sure that we would ever. No, I'm positive we would never have gotten an uh, adaptation of Dune like this. Not even close. Yeah. No, no freaking. I feel way, like man. if like this got into hands of like Amazon or if it got into the hands of Disney. They would turn into a series immediately. Yeah. Like they wouldn't even go for a film. I think it would just go. It'd be a failure. Yeah, and not a lot of people would love it. And it wouldn't have the passion and love that Denis has for Dune to go into. And not that there aren't. Maybe they chose a filmmaker that loves Dune, but in terms of the skill that Denis has and the vision that he has with his production designers and storyboard artists and his teams, I don't think. I think Denis' vision for his style of filmmaking. When you look at Arrival, when you look at Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Like that is perfect for Dune and what they created because he with Arrival and then Blade Runner twenty forty nine he started really getting into sci fi creating these vast worlds creating vessels creating aliens things like that and it was really all prep basically for Dune for him and you can tell Warner Brothers gave him everything he needed um, all the money he needed and all the resources he needed and you can tell they were not at all intrusive on his vision for the film because it is pure you know what I mean it's there's no it, it he the movie many people said that it was a little slow and a lot of people said it was boring ironically they'll defend Eternals for being boring which is pretty funny but dune this dune film it, it feels like it was made by with great care and the way that the story plays out I think that another studio any of the studios would have been like let's make this one movie um but them agreeing with Denis who was adamant about this has to be two parts. Then this wasn't a cash grab. This really, this book is huge. It needs to be two parts. I'm holding it in my hands. It's over 800 pages, guys. Exactly. It's 700. Yeah. yeah. And then there's an appendix and everything. So it's, and it's he, a huge, huge book. Yeah. And he didn't want to make one film because, like I said, with the cares, like it would be rushed. People would be confused. You'd have to leave so much out. 
Um, and so he was. I think that you got to you got to give it to Warner Brothers for being in legendary for being like Denis. Do what you have in mind in terms of your vision for the story, uh, and we'll see how it goes um, with the part one, and maybe we'll do a part two. But I think it, it, they did a great job just letting him take the reins. And we got to talk about Hans Zimmer, our boy the Hans. Goat. What a score this man came up with! He actually made three albums to Dune. He did Dune, the the official soundtrack for the movie. He did the Dune sketchbook, which incorporates very long tracks, a lot of thematic elements that you can hear throughout the film that aren't in the Dune soundtrack album. So you can definitely check that out for a bunch of extra tracks. And then also he made an album called The Art and Soul of Dune, which is supposed to accompany the book The Art and Soul of Dune, which I actually got for a Christmas present. And his journey to Dune actually mirrors that of Denis because he also was a massive fan of the novel when he was a boy. And always dreamed about making music for it. And so he passed up working with Nolan on Tenet in order to devote his time to Dune. And he, he did the entire score over lockdown with his crew. They turned his home into just like a Dune studio. And, you know, like he always does with these projects, he creates his own sounds. He created new instruments. He wanted to make instruments that were not on Earth. They were they were they they would sound alien, so they couldn't be from this planet. And... He also like researched the sounds of deserts uh, to really feel what the landscapes felt like. Um, and just, I think this score, it's so original. I've never heard anything like it. Um, the percussion, the guitar, those wind woodwind instruments, the those, synths. the synths, the chants. I mean, everything. It's the deep bass. It's an unbelievable achievement. And and I guarantee you he wins the Oscar. There's no way he doesn't win. It's incredible he hasn't won since The Lion King in 1994. But Dune, it's it's so special the movie, but the sound, the score is it feels it feels alive, it feels organic. It, it reminds me of Johan Johansson's score in Arrival, where that seemed like it had a heartbeat. The music felt real. It felt like an alive or like an organism. You know, it accompanied the the film so well in the the species of those aliens, and just like what what Hans does with the music is he he really captures the the characters not only of just them individually but the Harkonnens the the Atreides the Benny Gesserit the bagpipes yeah. with the Atreides it just yeah. makes you feel like it, it connects you to Earth you know we know what bagpipes are and it's just like an epic like that's a ballsy like instrument to do for a main theme for a movie I think like when was the last time you heard bagpipes in a movie that wasn't from like a funeral or something like that like in The Departed or something kid <laughs> and so. <laughs> What he did was astounding. <laughs> I've been listening to Dune like nonstop for like four months. I'm obsessed with the soundtrack. And I think that the the Dune sketchbook album is the best. I listen to that more than it's anything like else. It's like some of the best yeah. music I've ever heard that he's ever made yeah. of all time. It's incredible. And then he even joked that like he did an interview with Chris Nolan screening Dune um, like a month ago. And he joked that he's like, I think Hans is actually still working on the music. <laughs> Probably <laughs> he never stopped. We can all. I can only assume that he's not listed. On, he's not doing Oppenheimer, Nolan's new movie. He's doing it with Lauren uh, Ludwig again, who did Tenant. Do, uh, Hans isn't doing his next movie. We can assume because he's doing Dune Part Two, and he's probably working on the music right now. I would say yeah, he's probably doing Dune Part Two and maybe another scheduling conflict. Um, so I'm sure he'll work with Nolan again in the future. But yeah. also maybe he Nolan and. And Ludwig had a really terrific working relationship. Yeah, maybe, yeah. you know, sometimes directors... I mean, Spielberg hasn't worked with John Williams every time he's made a movie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, most, I mean, a lot yeah. of the times. Most of the times. But like, he didn't... Williams didn't do Bridge of Spies. Yeah, so there's plenty yeah. of movies that he hasn't done. Yeah. But, you know, Hans Zimmer, 
really lifted this movie to help put it in the stratosphere and, and put it in a in a Harkonnen highliner and transport it to another galaxy and universe. It's absolutely incredible. Well said. Well, well said. what he did. It's, I, I don't know how he made this music. And also the great influence of Middle Eastern cultures and instruments and music as well. Exactly. Now, before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast, where you get awesome perks like our podcast schedules. So you would have known that we were covering Dune today. Personalized videos, Patreon shoutouts for all top tier and Godfather tier patrons, as well as weekly bonus episodes for everybody that is a patron and Godfather tier gets an extra bonus episode that they get to choose. We just launched our podcast masterclass online course. So for anyone who wants to start a podcast or improve their current podcast, our 22 chapter 46 video lesson course will give you all the secrets behind the scenes of our show that we do on a daily basis so that you can try to find the success that we have. The link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com or just go to our website raidersofthelostpodcast.com it's right there on the homepage you can also see our content our merch our custom movie posters thank you for tuning in around the world be sure to follow subscribe hit the notification bell wherever you're listening or watching around the world now let's go down back into Arrakis and talk more about Dune I have a question about Dune for you sure is are all of the planets in the same galaxy um I'm pretty sure it's the thing with space travel and, and Dune, I'm not sure if it's all the same galaxy. Maybe, but because mm-hmm. I'm curious if they all share the same sun. No, 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 mm-hmm. no. It's different. Well, every solar system has a sun. Yeah. So there's no. Oh, I'm way- sorry. Every, I'm sure if, if they share the same solar system is my question. Not, not the same galaxy. solar system. No, these planets are super far apart. So mm-hmm. that's the, the thing about space travel and Dune is they basically bend time and space and they travel. Very far distances. <laughs> if Sorry, you're watching, James, my book just fell. fell. They travel impossible distances instantaneously. Okay, like a blink of an eye, they'll travel. Okay, a million light years so away. So they could be in the same galaxy, but in different yeah, solar so, systems. But yeah, yeah. The galaxies are enormous. Understood. I, um, I can probably fact wiki that. I was just curious because I was curious if like, do all these planets share the same sun? No, super far okay. apart. Super okay. duper, super duper duper far apart. Well, that's a lot of dupers. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get into all this stuff because that yeah. is a complicated question. I think people don't understand is like how do they travel are they traveling at the speed of light if so it'd still take millions yeah, and thousands that of doesn't light years. help yeah but it's, it's instantaneous travel because of obviously mm-hmm. we'll talk about it in a little bit so denis began pre-production in 2017 while he was in post-production on blade runner 2049 and immediately he went into world building and this starts with concept artist production designers his production designer patrice vermette who is nominated for an oscar this year at the academy awards has worked with denis since Prisoners, Sicario, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049. So he's responsible working with Denis and his concept arts for creating the environments, the worlds, everything you're seeing on camera, Patrice Vermette is heavily involved in. It's amazing to go from, you know, like the rundown kitchens and abandoned building and just simple houses in Prisoners and going to something like Blade Runner and then even multiplying that and going into the size of Dune. Because for real. It's just astounding how the scope and scale of their films has increased from movie to movie. And it has incredible concept artists. I highly recommend you all Google like these these artists and these drawings because most notably Deke Ferrand and then storyboards by Darry Henley and Sam Hudecki. They deserve recognition because they're the ones, along with Patrice and his team, they're creating what the world is going to look like with the vision of Denis Villeneuve. And I love... Patrice's work in this film and obviously collaboration with the vision of Denis because the production design of films I think goes so flies so under the radar for the average moviegoer and audience member 
um, to understand how much goes into something like this. Like all of these sets were actually built. And when you look at behind the scenes footage and when you're watching it on, on the big screen, you can tell like these are real environments. And what's really great about it is they built most of these sets to be almost completely immersive 360 degree sets. They're almost, but um, they had to obviously, they're, they're using one giant studio and building m multiple sets inside that studio. So, you know, they, have, they need to leave spaces for the crews to move in and out and to set up shots. But many of these sets were nearly completely immersive, which is very impressive. And I love the architecture of everything from the the Atreides base in Caladan to, you know, the city, the Arakeen city. It's just amazing what they did, the scale of it, the scope of it. And also the design is so atypical to what you would expect, especially like the ships, you know, the, the Atreides ships, um, the Har the Harkonnen ships, you know, the, the way they're shaped, the way they look, you know, the Bene Gesserit ships, you know, they're, they're, they all have reasoning behind the production design of each element in each ship like the Bene Gesserit ship is shaped like an egg to um, be a metaphor for fertility and the Harkonnen ships are big and round and they're not very scary looking because they wanted to go a little different in terms of let's not make it intimidating like these are the bad guys and then I really adore the the Caladan ships the Atreides ships and when they rise from within the water they're so massive and then I think but I think my favorite ships um, aside from the ornithopters, are the the highliners, the heliners, which are the the space travel vessels, which are these. Those are the gigantic uh, cylinders that like the smaller ships will fly out of when they'll be like parked outside of a planet. I think those are such a brilliant design um, because you need something that can travel through space, so it makes sense to have the interior to be exposed. And also, they remind me of the shape of a, of a worm. Kind of, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, they look like worms. That's them coming from a yeah. different part of the galaxy of the universe. So I think I just looked up like if it's the same galaxy. I yeah. don't think there's really an answer. It's just the known universe. Okay. Could be the same galaxy. Maybe it's assumed it's all happening in the Milky Way galaxy, but still they could be different like, solar systems. light years and light years yeah. away from each other. Different you know, suns. All these different yeah. suns all over the place, but they don't share the same sun. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's all incredible. The design is exceptional, and the production was huge. There are over 50 sets, and again, these are huge sets. Real sets, enormous, amazing wide shots in this film. Five huge sound stages were built as well as an enormous backlot set that they built and worked for day and night exterior shots. And what they would do is it was this giant area that they paved up and then created like a desert there for themselves with this desert colored walls all around them so that when they shot it, like this is when the Atreides land on Arrakis or Dune and all around them, it just looks like desert all around them, but this is in the back of a lot, you know? What I thought was really genius about the production, it's something they kind of almost invented for this movie, but I believe it had been done before, is they didn't use green screens, but they did use like this grayscale beige screen. So yeah. they decided that um, if we use green screens, the light that reflects onto like, because they built so much of the stuff, like the ornithopters and so many structures, like the, when light bounces off green screens, then you have to fix that in post when it bounces off someone or something reflective because green will bounce off of it. And so they built, they did instead of green screens, these beige screens, which have the same tone and color as, you know, the desert and sand and the, the color palette of the film that Denis was going for. And so they didn't even have to touch up anything on reflecting because like for shots when they're in the ornithopter, there's green screen behind the actors um, outside of the, the ornithopter um, because obviously they're they're creating a rackus around them. But in reality, it's these beige screens 
but they didn't have to do any touching up because the beige just naturally reflected its own color onto the ornithopter through the glass onto the actors and that really I, I think helped pull the audience into this world that they created where everything wasn't superficial and it felt real it was so much practical filmmaking they mm -hmm. built a ton of these ships and they would have to transport them on the largest like carrying carry-all passenger or not like the largest cargo planes that that there are they would have to travel with the ornithopter they have to put in this giant cargo plane and fly it to budapest flew it fly it to jordan they also shot in the united arab Emirates. Uh, they built two portable cities in the middle of the desert which served as base camps for the production and they would just go out into the desert and film all sorts of things and they also filmed in the mojave desert in los angeles and in big bear what's amazing about the the desert and about arrakis in general is you know, you're never told how big it is in the film, but the way they filmed it, it feels like it's just monumentally big as a planet. It feels like it never ends. And I think the reason for that is the way that Denis filmed it with so many wide, wide frames, so many shots of, you know, these massive ships that are so tiny, um, the size of the city. And also just like the landing pad when the Atreides land on Arrakis for the first time and they're walking through this like gigantic hella like this gigantic like like an airport kind of <laughs> it's just it seems like landing it, zone yeah it seems like it just stretches on forever and also the lack of landmarks outside of outside of the Arakeen city because the, the the fremen live underground so you can't tell there are no landmarks to really see this like how where your placement is on the planet. I just think that they did a, a wonderful job depicting the size and scope of the desert. I also think that the dunes do that. You know, it's endless dunes. It's the exact opposite of Caladon, their home planet, the Atreides home planet, which is an oceanic planet, very water rich, whereas Dune is literally Arrakis. It's all desert. That's why it's called Dune. The nickname Dune comes from it being a planet of sand dunes. That's why it's called Dune. But Arrakis is the planet's real name. And the planet Dune is about the size of Earth, but it's just all desert pretty much, which was why I think it seems so endless because it is endless desert. And uh, Denis also – so it's amazing what Denis did capturing this planet because it's not just the desert. It's like you feel it. Like when the doors open on – when when we're inside the, the Atreides ship and the doors open and the first thing that – um, Denise shoots that he shows us is just the sand blowing into the ship and it's like they've never encountered this before and just watching that waft into their into the room with um the Atreides and their soldiers and then also <clears throat> Denis um capturing uh the heat you feel the heat and just from the visuals you can just feel, you know you, you're not feeling hot but you you're experiencing it visual like stimulation and like the shot when the doors continue rising up and then, you know, like Leto and Paul and they're they're looking forward and then the, the doors open up. and The then Justice the, League shot? Yeah, the Justice League shot. And the light pours onto their faces and they're just like squinting because it's so bright. It's just a really simple trick of overexposing the film so that's a little too bright. But it makes it, it translates the feeling of the power of the heat of the desert. Something that these people have never experienced before. It, it's just an amazing technique that he used. Um just capturing both the desert and the heat. Plus, you know, going from Caladon to Arrakis so quickly. You yeah. know, the last shot of Paul on on Caladon is when he's putting his hand in that little puddle of water. He's like, "This is the last time I'll I'll probably feel like a, a an easy an, an endless supply of water in my fingertips 
until maybe later on in the Dune lore. Who knows? Uh, the desert gives you a sense of you know deep isolation when you get there. It forces you into a state of survival. Not the Atreides or or their soldiers at the at the moment because you know they are very wealthy. They are in charge of Arrakis. They are a royal house, so, and so they have wealth and they have water in abundance, even though no one else on Arrakis does. But you know the desert. Just to give you an idea of how hot it is on Arrakis. On, at daytime, it's about 158 degrees on Arrakis, 158 degrees Fahrenheit, 70 degrees Celsius at the hottest points on Arrakis, which is unsurvivable for about an hour or two. Yeah. And uh, you can see – you don't even need to be told that. You just look at the Ar- Arakeen City. So when they when Denis, he gives us plenty of shots of it, and you see the architecture of this vast city um, that's walled out for protect, protect, protection from the worms. What, what do the structures look like? They're all concrete they're all solid, thick walls, thick walls, flat, very skinny windows, narrow windows. There's no exposure of any kind. You can tell that it's like a a, a man made like cavern, like cave, like a like at night. I mean, when it gets too hot during the day, every single orifice of that city, every window, every door, it is shut, and it's just thick stone. And I really love the design of the, of that city because. Uh, it makes sense practically when it gets that if it gets that hot the city the only way the residents could survive is if they're completely enclosed in stone exactly now the screenplay is so phenomenal i mean we're talking about a book again it's about 800 pages it's very complex very complicated story so how do you translate all these little things that as soon as you start reading the book, I mean, there's an appendix in the back for help to help you figure out words you never heard of before. But you have to explain all that. There are a lot of intricate characters and story arcs. There's connections between characters and just the overall world of Dune and Arrakis and this this Dune lore. And the terminology is complex. And so Denis actually hadn't written a screenplay since his film Incendies in 2010. But he wrote Dune with Eric Roth and John Spates, both very accomplished. Roth wrote Forrest Gump. Ali, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and A Star is Born, to name a few. And Spates wrote Prometheus, Doctor Strange, and Passengers. And it seems like the three of them worked so well together to take all the important moments from the book and then interpret it and translate it into film format, screenplay format, so that it's digestible for people who don't know the book, have never read it, for them to understand everything that's going on. Because it's Star Wars is complicated, sure, but it's not as complex as Dune. And... They did a t- tremendous job simplifying complex things, but also maintaining everything you need to cre- keep it authentic to the world of Dune. And it wasn't over-explained. And I, I, I definitely heard plenty of complaints from people who said they, they had trouble following it. But I, I feel like, watch it again, and you'll, it'll, I'm sure like if it was a little overwhelming at first... Give it another go and try watching it uh, on, on a second viewing because, I mean, if you're going to watch another movie so many times, why not watch Dune a second time to help you get better digest everything? And I know it, it can be a lot, but if you really – the film takes its time and it does, I think, a really terrific job, like you said, of you know translating this very dense text into uh, a more simplified version with the, of the screenplay. Um, sometimes, you know, I'm sure the dialogue can be hard to follow if you're hearing a, a weird word for the first time, something you've never heard before. And then you're like, wait, what was that? So I understand. So I would recommend for anyone who had trouble following it, maybe we're a little lost here and there. 
I give it another go after listening after, to this yeah, whole podcast, especially after listening because to we're going to tell you everything. Yeah, because you know things like the Benny Gesserit, That I feel like that can be a, a a bit of a complex concept for newbies to understand about the story and the lore just from seeing like um, Charlotte Rampling's character and Lady Jessica just mentioning uh, a few things offhand to Paul. I'm sure things like that can be a little much to grasp for sure the yeah. first time around. All sorts of stuff like yeah. what's a Mentat? Why are they using swords yeah. in the distant future? Like all sorts of things like that which we will obviously get to in this episode. I don't think it's slow paced at all. It's paced very well. I mean this is again very long complex book and you had I to, thought it was fast paced. I mean too i yeah. was like slow down i want yeah. to see some more stuff <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because the way the book goes is there's so much stuff that you have to that is right away it's a tough read like you've never read it before a lot of people fail at reading this book and they can't make I've, it through i went back to pages many times I've, like yeah, wait hold on i need to reread that but it gets easier every time you i've read it three times it's easier each time but you know the movie they do such a great job but they leave it they have to leave so much out there's a lot they leave out especially like with the Benny Gesserit yeah they have the voice in the movie but there's so much about the Benny Gesserit and their abilities that they really don't have time to go into a few things they touch on how like Lady Jessica can tr- control her fertility hormones she can tell she can make a boy or a girl inside of her she can do things like the voice and some other stuff but there are plenty of things that they can't go into detail to because there's too much time not yeah. enough time yeah well so that gets me uh, one of my favorite concepts about the entire idea of Dune is this is so far into the future. This is what in the ten thousands. So it's the ten thousands after the start of the Padishah Empire. So before that, thank you for clearing 10, that up. There's about ten thousand years of. <laughs> so it's about the year 20 ish, twenty three thousand, something like okay. that. So the the year is like about ten thousand years after. Okay. Thank you. You could have just said twenty thousand. <laughs> well, I wanted to explain it to everyone because in the movie it says like ten thousand. <laughs> It's actually 10,000 years after the Padishah Empire. Well, actually, it's about uh, 10,000 years after the Padishah Empire was established, and then about 10,000 years before that. (laughs) Okay, so it's so far into the future. Technology, uh, it it was abandoned by human beings and uh, rejected by human beings in a way. Yeah, a little more nuanced nuanced than that. Yeah, so because human beings saw t- began seeing technology as a threat so they wanted to eliminate it from their lives and so this led them to developing human beings in a different way hence why there are people mentats in this movie they are human computers essentially and, and you know th- that this is how things are being done to humans like the experimentation with the hormones with the Bene Gesserit trying to bring about the perfect human beings so uh, human beings have are, are trained like um, Dr. Ua is trained as a, a doctor. He doesn't need to have all sorts of co- tools and equipment or devices. He can measure like Paul's heartbeat just with his fingertips, and he can do all sorts of things. You, no, no device is necessary, and so this is also why things like there, there's no one using guns in this movie because of things like shields and stuff. So I think that the idea of how technology has changed into a much more organic idea in this uh, story is just so fascinating. So th- th- what happened was machines be- and computers became so advanced that they were out- they were out- smarter than human beings and obviously conflict arose. And so there's a Butlerian Jihad, which is what it's called, where there's a war against thinking computers. And so human beings won that war because they would have been replaced. And so now, like Anthony said, human beings have replaced thinking computers and have been become so intelligent and, de- and developed new abilities like the Bene Gesserit, all of their abilities, like Mentats, which are human thinking computers, really. That's why. So Mentats, I think Denis and his team do a great job identifying Mentats with that lip 
uh yeah bar the tattoo like the tattoo bar yeah. on their lip and then they can like put their eyes into the into their head when they're doing calculations so that's what i meant Ted, is they have they're basically super genius human computers biological like organic computers you know they're human beings still but they're mentats they're very they've been trained since birth to become a human computer and even in the book paul has mentat training as well fun fact they don't talk about that in the movie though but so th- there are no smart computers in this world it's it's a law that the emperor has imposed throughout the padishah empire for its existence all like ten thousand years where you cannot have thinking computers thinking machines obviously there's there are still computers you know they have ships they have weaponry they have all sorts of stuff they have screens his film book his film book that's the type of computer but they're not thinking computers so that's been outlawed and again how i love how anthony brought up shields you know shields have become a, a an intense form of defense which is why there are no guns being used in Dune during combat and battle. Very seldom will you see guns used in hand-to-hand or like infantry combat because they are just deflect off a shield, whereas they use swords because the slow blade penetrates the shield. That's how you get through a shield is you have to go through it a little more slowly than like a slash or a stab. So that's why guns aren't used. Las guns or the guns in, in the Dune world, they aren't used anymore for the most part. And... So the shields, they block something that's coming at high velocity. It will just bounce off it like a bullet or like a fast blade. That's why. And I think they needed a really smart job of translating that with the colors of red and blue. So blue means safety. And so whenever you see, you know, that blue glow for a couple of frames, that means it's a, a fast blade hit or a fast strike. Hence, the blade doesn't go through. And then red, obviously, we know naturally to mean danger. And so that I think it was really smart for the to make the audience really grasp the concept of the shields that when it's red, that means it's a dangerous attack. And also, it's a new form of fight choreography we've never seen in a movie. So this is a great quote from Denis. I developed with our stunt coordinator and choreographers a way of combat that is closer to a chess game than a fighting sequence, Villeneuve continued. When you fight someone with a shield, the idea is to distract them with moves in advance. You want to distract them with a specific move so you can slowly bring the blade into their body. It's a totally different way of fighting. It's a way of fighting that is very fast. It's like a chess game. You have to plan in advance and distract the adversary. It's a very specific new art form of combat so it's not simple knife sword fighting it's intense strategic gameplay and actually the more times you watch this movie the more clear that becomes when you watch the the fight sequences and it becomes like oh okay i can see like how they're moving and positioning themselves to get that slow strike or get their blade into a position of being able to slowly get it past the shield and they do a great job as screenwriters and denise a filmmaker to give this simple exposition real quickly during the combat training between gurney halleck and paul you know gurney saying the things like uh, the slow blade penetrates the shield. I'm sure Paul's known that f- since he was a child, since he's been training for fighting since he was a, since he could walk. So he knows that, but they're letting the audience know how the shields work. And this is why, again, every soldier is fighting with a sword or a knife or a dagger instead of a gun. Yeah, and I love how every um, race has like their own kind of weaponry, their own versions of like a sword or a ship and you know even the even the harkonnens have ornithopters ornithopters but they're different looking you know they're there's larger and they look more fierce they have more like turrets on it as opposed to the atreides uh, ornithopters so I, I love how even though they're using the same kind of technologies it's different like baron harkonnen's shield is a ring on his finger and I, I love that he just like taps it with his finger and then it turns on and that's just a great moment where like even with leto 
incapacitated, immobilized. He can't even sit up. He Baron it shows that he's like a little frightened um, to get even close to Leto. Shows him to have a little bit of cowardice to even turn his shield on. So I love how uh, Denis used the technology from the novel because I believe the novels um, the shields are are waistband. And so he he decided to make them uh, a wristband to make it more seamless and a little bit more like modern for us to be like, oh, that makes more sense since we wear technology on our wrists now. It would make sense to put it on a wrist. Yeah, it's just little things like that that adapt better to film and yeah. look better. And, and, you know, it displays better on a screen rather than if reading in a book. It seems totally fine for it to be on your waist. And the technology, it's it's again, it's low tech, but also very advanced because it's the future. And again, no thinking computers, but simple computers, radios, navigation, et cetera, exist. But I mean, we're talking about these in a world where these highliners allow instantaneous travel to distant planets. They're bending time, and that's only possible, and space travel is only possible because of the spice melange, which is the most valuable resource in the entire universe, the known universe. Melange is the most valuable resource, and it's only produced on Arrakis because that's where Shai Halud is. That's where the sandworms are. And the sandworms are responsible for the production of the spice in the desert. And that's why Dune is such a focal and center point of the empire of the Harkonnens. And one of the reasons why the Atreides were sent there. Yeah, and spice has so many uses from medicinal purposes to uh, creating visions to um, being, being able to elicit uh, intergalactic space travel because the pilots of the ship's take the spice to be able to see into the future where they are going because otherwise it would be impossible to travel at that speed without knowing where you're going. Exactly. So the spacing guild and the guild navigators use the spice to be able to have prescient visions of where they will be traveling during instantaneous space flight. Otherwise, they wouldn't know where they're going or it wouldn't be possible. You could crash, crash into, into a something, planet, yeah. crash into a planet and explode on instantaneously and never exist anymore. Big time explosion. Big, big time guy. <laughs> and so it's, it's required for this vast instantaneous space flight and without it the empire would cease to exist the empire would crumble because they wouldn't be able to travel so quickly and there wouldn't be an empire there wouldn't yeah. be an empire yeah. yeah the emperor would have control over probably just a couple planets that's it wherever he is in his solar system and the spice again it only is where shahalud is that's only where the the giant shahalud is a sandworm the sandworms yeah. the, the giant sandworms in arrakis in the in the desert yeah. In the Fremen, they have been using the melange per, on their by themselves as, you know, as a supplement for their lives. That's why they have they're very healthy people despite living in these incredibly harsh conditions because it helps prolong life, immense health benefits, and the, the that's why they have blue eyes. It gives them the eyes of Ibad from prolonged exposure in in consumption of the spice. And once you become once you are on Arrakis. And once you're there for just a day, the spice is in you. It starts to become inside you because it's in the air. It's everywhere pretty much. And they, people on Arrakis and Dune, they have spice in their food. They have spice in their coffee. They don't really touch on it too much in the movie, but that's what it's like in the book. But eventually, most people who consume a, a spice-rich diet develop some tint of blue in their eyes. But the Fremen specifically have very vibrant blue eyes because of how much spice they consume. And I, I love how that's slowly depicted with Paul throughout the film, his exposure to the spice um at, at, at first i would say it's very subtle like when they're on the landing pad it, it, they don't even display it but then uh the first big moment is um when they go see the harvester and they start saving the men from the harvester as the the worm is approaching and then uh i almost call him timothy paul has that vision because he's been 
blasted with that dust cloud of of spice and that elicits the vision of seeing Chani and um, his own death by her hand in the bloody Chris knife. And then he, we, we don't touch on until later on when he's been exposed to it long enough inside the tent and he has the full-on vision of the very distant future and the possibility for his path in life. And I really love how it's slowly depicted the exposure of the spice. And my, maybe my favorite moment is when he and Jessica have been kidnapped by those Harkonnens and they're getting ready to dispose of them in the desert. Uh, Paul tries to use his voice to command them to do something, but it doesn't work. And it's then when one of the Harkonnens opens the door, I believe the exposure to the spice gave him, allowed him to really seize on the right pitch of the voice to make it work that time. So I think that was a great moment of showing how exposure to the spice helps him with his abilities. Plus, Paul is a very interesting character with two prophesied paths in his life. But before we get into like characters and stuff, I want to talk like about each group, each house, the Fremen. We'll talk about the yeah. Harkonnens because then, and then I want to go each character because there is so much to talk about. I hope you all are comfortable. You're on a long drive because <laughs> maybe you're at the gym. We are just getting started. We're we're what forty minutes in, and I'm barely like in any of my notes or anything I want. To I talk haven't about. even left page one. So I would say let's start with the Fremen because we're still talking about Dune and Arrakis. And the whole world of Dune and the Spice is about the Fremen, really. So the Fremen, um, we talked about the blue eyes, the eyes of Ibab, but the Fremen had come to the planet Arrakis thousands of years before the events of the novel and the book as Zensuni wanderers, a religious sect in retreat as humans and extremists. Over time, they adapted to their culture and way of life to survive and thrive in the incredibly harsh conditions of Arrakis. The Fremen are distinguished by their fierce fighting abilities and adeptness at survival in these conditions. With water being such a rare commodity on the planet, their culture revolves around its preservation and conservation. Frank Herbert based the Fremen culture in part on desert-dwelling Bedouin and Sand people. The Fremen typically live in patriarchal collectives known as sieges, which are led by a nabe, who's kind of like the leader of the seat of each siege. Each siege resides with one of the resides within one of the numerous rocky formations that dot the sands of Arrakis. And so, and also, who do the Fremen remind you of in Star Wars? Uh, the sand people. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're Fremen. They're very religious, very spiritual, spiritual, superstitious. They worship Shai Halud as a physical manifestation, manifestation of God. And Shai Halud are the giant sandworms that occupy the deserts of Arrakis. And what I really love about the Fremen is their technology that they, they've developed living there and surviving there from like the still suits to the, to the thumpers to, the, the tents that they can use. And they've developed this technology to preserve every drop of water. And it can be a little gross sometimes. Like when they make coffee, they use their own spit. Uh, it's That's a little nasty. But... <laughs> Yo, Anthony, give me some spit, bro. I'm a little short over here. <laughs> but it's really fascinating, the idea of preserving every ounce of water possible. And it makes sense. And I just think that the, the production's translation onto the screen was really brilliant it's a little different from the novel if i remember don't aren't there suits like the color of sand to blend in no i don't think so i, I don't think they're dark in the book I'm pretty sure they're dark i'm pretty sure they're not well I, it's dark in both movies no i i know but that but i believe they made them dark in movies to make them contrast the desert maybe for i can't us. remember i believe because the way they are able to move through the desert undetected 
like when um, Duncan is searching for them and can't see any of them, is because they blend into the environments because of the color of their suits. I believe still suits are the color of, also, of the desert. really good at hiding. Yeah, they are great at hide and seek. But the still suits, there are other versions of them on Arrakis by other manufacturers, but the Fremen suits are the best. So the Fremen are the, are the Arrakis people who live in the desert. The... The people on Arrakis that occupy the cities, like Arakeen, they are not Fremen, but they can be fre- – like, Fremen are welcome sometimes. They, they go and occupy cities and go there from time to time. Like, Liet Kynes is welcome in both Siege and Village, like she says. Um, a proper Fremen still suit, which are the best, will allow user to, a user to only lose a thimbleful of water per day, and a body your body's movements – are what creates the energy for the suit to work and and help keep all your water intact, mace basically, and filter out all your nastiness, all your sweat, all your excretions, and filter it out into clean drinking water, which is pretty gross. That's why when Lady Jessica takes her first sip, and Paul's like, "Yeah, it's sweat and tears." And the nasty. sand, the sandworms are so fascinating. I love the depiction of them in this film, and we've barely even seen them. You know, I can't wait for the next film because we're gonna learn. We're gonna, you're gonna learn so much more about the Fremen if you haven't read the book. Like this incredible culture, it's so unique. Like how they, they, they preserve the dead immediately to extract all the water from every person who dies in the Fremen culture. That's that's the greatest worth that a person can have in a siege or in the Fremen culture is, is your water. That's your worth. And if you die, you, ima- you immediately have your water stripped from your body, um, things like that. And also the the challenging and the fighting and the and challenges to death, that's a part of Fremen culture, which happens at the end of the film. But the sandworms are worshipped by them. And obviously we're all assuming you've seen this movie because I'm, we're going to spoil some stuff. Like right now at the end of the film, Lady Jessica and Paul – get to see a glimpse at Fremen riding Shai Halud, riding the giant sandworms for travel purposes, which is incredible. Sand um, Desert power. Exactly, like Leto was uh, telling Paul to accumulate. Yeah, So, but the sandworms, I think the design of them in this movie was just amazing. And so the thing with the knee is the design of his creatures and ships, like when you watch them in a movie, you're like, it's obvious. That, but it's like no one else could come up with it except for him. And his team, you know what I mean? Oh, like it's obvious. Like that's what I was picturing in my head. Yeah. Well, not I wasn't personally picturing it, but then when you look at it, you're like, oh my god, that's yeah, that's that's what sandworms should look like. You know what I mean? (laughs) Exactly. Because it's so different from everything that would like anyone else would design. Um, And most notably, it's not just the size of them, but it's the teeth that I think are so memorable about them. The teeth, rather than being like big sharp teeth or like like some worms have actually have teeth and these teeth are like so they're super narrow like these super skinny long tubes and they stretch out and it looks like it's just like string within like the giant mouth of the sandworm but these are all like the exact the same texture as like the chris knife like that's what those they're they're just solid teeth and they just like grasp a hold of whatever the worm is consuming and just pull it into its mouth and just drag it inside of its throat it's just really i love the teeth design of the worm it was so surprising when i saw it in the first trailer i was like 
Whoa, that just makes total sense. Yeah, and so the teeth the Fremen actually use as knives, as Chris knives. They're very important to their culture, very honorable weapons to pass on to people, whether it be Mapes, the, the, the housemaid. housemaid. She yeah. gives the Chris knife to Lady Jessica, who obviously identifies her immediately because Lady Jessica will get into later on is very intelligent, has studied a lot of stuff. And so a Chris knife is very special to Fremen culture. And actually in the book, they explain that the blade has to meet blood every two weeks or else it will start to lose its strength and properties so blood always has to keep it a lot keep it like well and keep it kept which is really interesting very cool it's so like this, a vampire knife. yeah kind of exactly <laughs> and i think a lot of people might be confused about these sandworms in the desert how do they like swim in sand how do they like swim through desert which is really like how, i wonder how they do that but actually don't they show us yeah I they, they kind of show yeah. us it's a vibration mm-hmm. so when sand is met with intense vibration it basically becomes liquefied it, it emulates water which is science this is actually proven fact so the sand when the when the sandworms are traveling through sand they're creating so much vibration so much force that to them the sand is like it's like swimming through water and that's why when anyone's around it they start to sink in like it's not like quicksand it kind of it like ripples like water there are ripples in sand like the name of one of the tracks that Hans Zimmer made for the film it was genius filmmaking um depicting it cuz it's not CGI i feel like so many filmmakers would have just gone CGI with like the vibration of the sand like when that sand is attacking the the harvester and you know, Gurney goes to to rescue Paul and wake him from his trance, and then they run, and then they both fall down, and they have trouble standing up because the the sand is vibrating, and the actors' hands and knees, and they're just sinking into the sand. That's all real. They Vibration. actually they built these giant vibrating machines, put them. They didn't build them, but they bought them and put them together, and just covered them with sand. And so when they started filming, they turned them on, and the vibration actually did that in camera, and the actors actually did sink into the sand. And it's a perfect way of illustrating how the sandworms move through the sand by showing that how easily they slipped underneath. Show, don't tell. It's a perfect example of it right there. It just creates it and turns it into water, basically. It's really fascinating. It's just like incredible filmmaking. And the spice that just like the seeing the little pieces of the spice in the air – uh, especially when Paul is having his first trance. And what I like about the trances is the way Denis films them is with soft, long lenses where not the entire image of Timothy Chalamet is in focus. Uh, he, he does shallow depth of field because, you know, it, Paul is experiencing this, like, blurriness, this he can't, he's not, nothing solid. He's, like, moving between, like, these perspectives and viewpoints and he doesn't even know what's real or what's not real. And so Denis brilliantly translates that with just the lenses he selects because we go from all these great wide lenses, everything's so sharp, and we everything is just in focus to when he's having these visions, tight close-up, long lens, uh, blurriness on uh, Paul's face, just b- brilliant filmmaking. The Fremen in general are just a mystery for the majority of this film because it takes a while, you know, to get to Arrakis and then all the developments, the attack of the Harkonnens, and then we, we meet... We meet Stilgar, played by Javier, Javier Bardem, pretty early. He's a naive of his siege taber. And so basically he's the leader of that siege. He's a, he's a leader amongst the Fremen. And he's a very honorable man. I love how he comes into the, into uh, the you could say, the palace of the Arrakis palace that they're living in now. And he spits on the table. That's his sign of respect. You know, he's giving his the, the moisture of his body 
as a sign of respect. This just shows the different cultures where they take it as offense at first. Then the other important Fremen that we meet are Chani, played by Zendaya, who Paul immediately starts to have visions of and is having dreams of before he even goes to Arrakis, before he goes to Dune. And then Jamis. Jamis is the Fremen who he defeats in battle after Jamis, Jamis challenges him because Paul bested him. I, I think that Denis had a really great idea of opening the film with Chani's voiceover because that's not that's not how the book opens. Um, but having her explain Dune, the history of the Harkonnens uh, ruling there for 80 years. The spice. The spice, the harvesting, the emperor. Um, the the idea, like how the Harkonnens were ordered to leave and then the Atreides, like who's going to take their place and rule over us again? Our next oppressors. Yeah, our next oppressors. I think it was just like two minutes. But I feel like in two minutes, Denis really captured the important aspects of building this world and understanding what Arrakis is, where the Atreides will be going, and what they have in store for them. I think it was a great way to open the film with her. Now, let's go to House Atreides. How's that sound? Oh, I wanted to talk about Jameis real quick. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's talk about Jameis. Yeah, I'm not ready, man. I'm sorry, man. I'm not ready. So sorry. So, so Jameis, uh, in particular, is it's a very interesting role because... And I, we knew this because we read the book before the movie. But if you, when you watch the movie, and I'll, I'm, I'm going to say something spoilery. Yeah. So if you, yeah. there's spoilers yeah. at this point, like so, um, before we meet Jameis, um, Paul has visions of him in the ornithopter during the the storm, and in his visions, he um, seems to be very good friends with Jameis, and Jameis seems to be like a mentor to him. Um, and there's these a couple of moments where he gives him advice and tells him he's going to teach him everything about the desert and. And so Paul is beginning to kind of understand his visions, but not fully, um, not fully grasp them. And so when we meet Jameis with the other Fremen and they have that knife fight, as an, I'm, sh- I'm sure as an audience member, you're like, oh, they're going to fight, but then Paul's going to best him, but then they'll be, they'll be friends after this and he's going to be his mentor because that's what Paul's visions told us. But he kills Jameis. And none of that will happen. None of the things in his visions are going to come true. And I thought, it's, first of all, it's a great surprise for the audience to watch Jameis die thinking that we're going to keep seeing him. And also it's a great way of showing um, how unreliable Paul's visions can be. Exactly, because Paul's visions, when he starts getting exposed to the spice, they become enhanced. He's already having prescient visions before he gets to Arrakis in his dreams. He's seeing Chani. But then every time he's exposed to the spice, they become more powerful. And then the tent is like his best, his most full-on vision of the future when he sees the Jihad in his name and the name of House Atreides. And so the visions of, of Jameis are really interesting because it's definitely like a mix of the, an unreliable narrator in a way. Because he's having so many visions that go in so many different directions and he doesn't know which path is the one he's going to select. So he see, he's seeing multiple... Uh, outplays of every circumstance every step he takes in this direction if he goes in that direction if he does this to that person multiverse so he's, he's seeing a multiverse Chani, in his mind. he sees a vision of Chani killing him exactly yeah. so he's seeing a multiverse of all possibilities of his life path and so that's simultaneously all simultaneously so he's he's having trouble like Anthony was saying figuring out if it's true or not it's a it's a great unreliable narrator yeah, in film. It's, a, it's an amazing concept and it makes sense because He's, How do you show that yeah, without being yeah. being boring? You know, exactly. it's like you can show thirty different versions, but it's like it's kind of weak. Exactly. I think they did just a brilliant job with that. So next up, let's talk about Caladan, the water planet where the Atreides live. But before that, 
we got to get into our intermission, Jim. We're already an hour in. Let's do it. I can't wait. We're just starting. All right. right. Movie quote competition time. Ready? This is for me. Please don't avoid me. It kills me. I can't stand thinking you hate me. Your silence is killing me. I'd sooner die than know you hate me. What is this? Say it again. Let's try to say it like him. Please don't hate me. Please don't avoid me. It kills me. I can't stand thinking. <laughs> Sorry. Please don't avoid me. It kills me. I can't stand thinking you hate me. Your silence is killing me. I'd sooner die than know you hate me. Yes, sir. Bill Murray. Oh, wait, no. Royal... no? No. <laughs> no. No. I thought you were pointing at a poster that I used to have. That's is it hit. Jason Schwartzman in Darjeeling? No. It's, it's not a Wes Anderson. It's movie. not Wes Anderson? No. I'm stumped. It's uh, Elio and Call Me By Your Name. Oh, it's the note he yeah, leaves for. Yeah. I was thinking Oliver. of someone who said it. That threw me off. Oh, sorry. But it sounds like something Bill Murray's character would say to Gwyneth Paltrow. Kind of, yeah, the fast, witty. Yeah. Okay, here's my quote. Good okay. one. You, you got me. Thanks. Stumped. They only cried when I left them. Oh, this is a messed up. I feel like it's a messed up line. <laughs> they only cried when I left them. Oh, man. I don't know. Prisoners. I was going to say prisoners. Is it, <laughs> is it the aunt? It's Alex. Or Alex. Oh, yeah. That's what he says to, to Hugh in the, about the, in the kids. parking lot. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. That's a good quote. All right. Guess this movie release year. So, actually, I, I changed this up a bit, Ooh, if that's okay. changed it up. Ooh. So, in 2013, uh-huh. Denis dropped two movies. Denis Villeneuve had two releases. What were they? <laughs> <laughs> Prisoners and enemy. There you go. This asshole. <laughs> the smugness. You're more smug than the guy at the theater that was sitting behind us today. Oh my god. We gotta tell you guys in our. We did, we're gonna do a review of Death on the Nile. Oh my god. This guy. This guy is sitting behind us. Goodness. Oh we should do a whole episode yeah. on him. <laughs> what a what a bum. Oh my god. I'm gonna tear him apart in our in our review. <laughs> okay. Guess this movie release here. Spectre. Twenty. How long ago was this? Um, I don't know. You tell me. 2016? 2015. 15. That's that long ago. Wow. Yeah, he took a big break. Damn. They needed a, they needed a reset after that. All right, movie pop quiz time. What cast member of Dune was also in The Dark Knight? <clears throat> the uh, Mentat for uh, Baron Harkonnen. Yeah, do you know his name? But yeah, that's right. I'll give it to you. I can't remember his name. David Desmalchian. David Des... What? Desmalchian. Desmalchian. He was also Mr. Polka Dot in um, The Suicide Squad. And he was in Prisoners. So he's awesome actor, getting the recognition he deserves. And he was in Blade Runner. Uh, Denis has killed him in every movie. <laughs> Is he really? Yeah, he's, he's killed in Prisoners. <laughs> well, don't spoil it for people who haven't seen these movies. <laughs> he doesn't die ever. <laughs> he never dies. Well- <laughs> Good thing he's not a they've, lead. They've seen them. Good thing he's not a lead. They've seen them. <laughs> Goodness. Jeez. Andy loves spoiling movies for <laughs> He's people. in like three scenes. <laughs> okay, here's my quiz. What was the name of Dave Bautista's character in Blade Runner 2049? Oh, good question. Damn. What is his name? What is his <sighs> name? Just his first name. Just, we'll do. Yeah, it's like one word, right? One name. Yeah, it's just a name. He's like, he's like, <laughs> it's one word. Who are you, Seal? Most, most names. Are no, it's just like one name. Like, no, he has two names, but uh, just give me the first name. <sighs> Drax the Destroyer. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. Sapper. Sapper. Sapper Tree. Sapper Street. Sapper Street. 
Damn, of course. All right. Good question. Thanks. Do we have any haters of this episode or, or unsubscribed? We, we have some we haters. Got, we got some. Anything, we got some. Anything. I got a couple of screen grabs. couple screen grabs. Anything fun? In our football episode, Tommy Stark wrote, No mention of the program with Halle Berry, James Cann, and Omar Epps. Unsubscribed. Sorry. Sorry. And then uh, Hunter LeBlanc wrote, this is this podcast should be called Raiders of Their Lost. I thought that was pretty funny. That's it for haters. There aren't, We haven't been getting many real haters lately. All right, we have a great five-star. Do you have any subscribers? Oh, yeah, I Sorry. got another hater. So we got uh, someone upset about our football episode. Mike Moe, no mention of the Little Giants. Unsubscribe. I, I, after we posted, yeah. I'm like, oh, the Little Giants. Yeah. Oh, we have a real hater. We have a real hater. So I made a I posted a video about me explaining the shining in the clip and then Gotcha Maker three nine two wrote might want to get someone who can actually talk to narrate this and then one of our fans actually came in and said no way you're serious bro go somewhere else if you can't understand his mumbling and then <laughs> and then that guy wrote again I did couldn't stand your clippy ass mumble mouth audio so professional. <laughs> It's <laughs> a fucking TikTok clip. Jesus Christ! So prof- you're, you're, you want professionality on TikTok? You're on TikTok, bro. You're on TikTok. I didn't know you went to TikTok for audio quality. Sometimes Anthony has a case of the mumbles. Sometimes well, no, I have a, a case of the mumbles. It's a clip that I had to piece together. Oh, okay, so it's I, had, I had to take a three minute clip and trim it down to thirty seconds. Hey, that's tough. So that's gonna mean, sound it, mumbly. Yeah, it's, it's like, gonna Jesus. sound not organic yeah. and not flow right. I think it was a great clip, man. Thanks, man. Just, just to let you know. Appreciate it. It's nice to be appreciated. Speaking of great, we have a great five-star review from Total Stranger. No T in there. My newest binge obsession. There isn't an episode I missed now that I've subscribed. I'm amazed I never get sick of you two and and, (laughs) am interested in all your episodes. So rare. You are so respectful and entertaining in your reviews of movies. You both know your stuff and do great research. I wish you both the best in life, and thank you for the entertainment and enjoyment your podcast provides. We needed you over COVID. Aw, thanks, thanks, pal. so much. That's so nice. That's such a sweet review. It's nice. All right, on this day in film history, today is February 21st. Today is President's Day in the United States, which is for honoring George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. In 1990, the Batman theme by Danny Elfman wins the Grammy Award for Best Instrumental Composition at the 32nd Annual Grammy Awards. In 1996, Bottle Rocket was released. In 2003, Old School was released. And happy birthday to the late Alan Rickman, Camille Nanjiani, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Elliot Page, and Sophie Turner. My streaming recommendation is, have we done this before? HBO Max released Nightmare Alley two weeks ago, right? We haven't. Oh, yeah. it's on HBO Max? Yeah. No way. Yeah. You guys, if you have HBO Max, watch, watch that next. If you haven't seen it, it's one of the best movies of the year last year. Absolutely one of the best of the year. It's un- it's incredible. One of Guillermo's best. It's like top it's five one of his Guillermo. It's for top sure. three Guillermo. Yeah, maybe. It's like Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth, and, and Nightmare, Nightmare Alley. Alley. Maybe, That's yeah. no, I'm not even kidding. Like, it's oh, I need good. to watch it again. It's so damn I really want to watch it again. I'll, I'm going to watch it soon. So, guys, get on that ASAP. Get on it. My streaming recommendation get on it. is... <laughs> <laughs> what was pop it? Pop Beep it. it. Get on it. <laughs> what was the uh, the the one you put around your ankle and, and swing? It was oh I can't remember. <laughs> if someone remembers that, let us know. I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> we had the we had the best toys. The nineties man. 90s. There's some weird toys. <laughs> like remember the st- you had the, there's a thing where you hold these two sticks and then you just play with another stick in the air. With yeah, the two yeah, sticks. yeah. <laughs> it was like a thicker stick. Yeah, and you just swing it around. Oh my god! <laughs> like, what the hell? Stuff. The nineties were wild. They're just shooting. They're just shots, trying man. everything, shooting, anything, whatever. We didn't have video games. Yeah. To, like we didn't have we didn't have. Consistent. Vi- there were video games, but yeah, not. They not, were not like they are. They now. were not immersive. <laughs> 
<laughs> like you don't lose, you didn't lose your life in yeah. Mario. They were not they were not Fortnite. Sega was lit, but like you, you, can you, only, you only play so much Sonic, then you're like, I've got a board. You can only talk to yourself when you're playing a video game. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an experience. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but if everyone remembers that toy that wrap around your your uh, ankle and then you jump and twist it, I can't remember. So it was a great toy. <laughs> so my stream recommendation is the Swedish version of the girl with the dragon tattoo was just added onto Prime. You should, if you haven't seen the trilogy, check it out. It's awesome. And Numi Rapace is a superstar. Oh, she's awesome yeah. in those movies, and they're great adaptations from the books. If you've read the entire the, the original yeah. trilogy by Stieg Larsson, yeah, very very faithful. So so good. Elizabeth Slander is one of the most interesting characters of the 21st century. Oh, hands absolutely. Down, hands down. It's in fiction in general. It's a shame David Fincher didn't get to do the trilogy. Would have been epic. Would have been insane. It would have been crazy. I know. All right. Um, are we good with the intermission? We're good with our intermission. All right. Let's head back into Dune and let's start talking about House Atreides and Caladan, which is their home planet, similar to Earth, except more ocean, more water. But yes, there is land on Caladan. It's a lush oceanic work world the ancestral home of house atreides for 26 generations the landscape as a result was scattered with rivers and mountains and hosted a diverse and complex underwater ecosystem presumably although never stated complex ecosystem extended to land and we can assume that uh trade and farming and and vegetation was a huge uh resource for them yeah exactly and i love the (laughs) (laughs) i love the depiction of um you see this bull the the bull's head multiple times because Leto's father he he liked to uh, fight bulls he was a bullfighter just for fun. And Grandfather fought bulls, bulls for for, <laughs> for sport and look where that got him. <laughs> <laughs> but then he has a great shot yeah. of the statue of the bull multiple times. Yeah. You see it multiple Early. times and you see at breakfast. Yeah, because it's so important to Leto. He actually brings it with him to Arrakis, and multiple times we'll see the shot like the final shot of Leto. Before we see his death, we see the bull on the on the wall, um, and I think it's a great connection to his heritage, a great connection to his family and his father, and it's something that he passes down to his son by – he probably gave him that little toy, that little small sculpture of his grandfather fighting a bull, and it's something that Paul turns to multiple times. He just stares at, but you can tell when he looks at that, it's when he's deep in thought or conflicted about something. I think that the bull has a lot of resonance within the Atreides family. And the Atreides specifically, not with Lady Jessica. In the books, they describe how Lady Jessica does not like the bull. She doesn't want it hung up. But Leto is adamant that they hang it up in their new quarters in their house at Arakeen when they settle in. And she wishes it didn't exist and wasn't there because it's a reminder of Leto, the senior, I mean, his, his father, and how, you know, he was... Like Leto's a great man, he's a great leader, but each each Atreides is very different, and you could tell that the grandfather was more of a hothead, more of a risk taker, obviously for fighting bulls for sport than Leto is, and then what Leto wants Paul to be. Paul want Leto wants Paul to obviously be a great leader and powerful because he's been training since he was a young boy in many different arts and whether it be fighting or or education, or Mentat skills, or Benny Gesserit's or training. Or dancing. Or dancing. I'm sure he's a great dancer, too. Uh, formal training, all that stuff. But he also wants him to be a great leader and have a great mind versus making mistakes that his father probably would have. Yeah, I think one of the best um, scenes of, of dialogue in the whole movie is that when Leto and Paul are talking um, in the cemetery, 
And I like how the cemetery, it's, um, everyone's buried above ground in the Atreides family in these uh, stone tombs. Very cool. Uh, but they have that discussion about leadership where Paul, because Timothy Chalamet is an adult, yeah, but he still has that youthful look, so you can believe him as a kid. Paul's 15. He's a kid. And I think that in the first act of this, in the first half of this film, uh, Chalamet does a great job portraying the insecurity, the naivety, the you know, the hesitance of such a kid, young kid being tasked with the potential. The, he knows he's going to be ruling over this planet soon, and he's unsure about himself. He's he doesn't feel confident that he can be a great leader like his dad can be. And but I think when Leto goes, they have this great line. He says, "A great leader doesn't seek to lead; it, it's it calls to him." And it's something that if you don't, it's like he, him not wanting it makes him the perfect person to be a leader in a way. Even though he ends up becoming, you know, a questionable leader in the future. But if you don't, if you don't want the power, that means that you're. It's better that you should have power if you don't crave that. It's just like Maximus and Gladiator. Yeah, exactly. That is why it must be you. <laughs> <laughs> or Jon Snow. I never asked for it. <laughs> a great man doesn't seek to lead. He's called to it. <laughs> great great Marcus really references. Yeah. <laughs> and and Leto's a natural leader. You know, he says that great line. Like, I wanted to be a pilot. You think I wanted this? I didn't want this ring either. But he took it on. And I, I love Oscar Isaac in this role. And he heard that Denis was making Dune. He immediately wrote to Denis saying he loves Dune, loves his films, just throwing this out there. And Denis, Denis responded with, you love Dune, interesting, dot, dot, dot. And that was like the end of it. And then he cast him as Leto. And I think Oscar's – this whole movie is perfectly cast. Yeah. Every single actor perfectly cast to the T. I couldn't imagine anybody else doing it, especially Paul with – Timmy Chalamet and Leto with Oscar Isaac and Paul Atreides, very interesting character. But first, like one quick thing I want to talk about is Caladan versus Arrakis, how they're both polar opposites. You know, Arrakis is this harsh desert climate, and then Caladan is this water-rich climate. And that's it's a shock to the system when they all get to Arrakis. But Paul Atreides, he's been spending his entire life studying intensely many fields, whether it be martial arts, like I was talking about, history mathematics, science. He's also being taught the Bene Gesserit ways by his mother, Lady Jessica, who is a Bene Gesserit. And he already has prescience without the spice. You know, he's seeing this girl in his dreams. He doesn't know who she is. And he's having visions of Duncan, Duncan Idaho on Arrakis and on Dune. And then that's when he's, then when he starts to encounter the spice, his prescience is drastically strengthened and he begins having clearer visions. And like Anthony was talking about earlier, one of the most powerful moments in the film is when he's in the tent with Lady Jessica, his mother, and he's being engulfed with the spice that's inside the tent. And he has an intense vision of this jihad, this religious war in his name. And he starts calling Jessica calling out Jessica for making him a freak and you know Benny Jesuit witches and stuff like that so Paul Paul is again been very trained he's a he's one of the most skilled individuals probably in the galaxy in the universe the known universe super intelligent he's been raised with mentat abilities Benny Jesuit abilities probably one of the greatest fighters in the universe as well martial arts he's been trained by Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck and Duncan Idaho is the finest fighter in the galaxy and so that's how powerful Paul is yeah it's a complicated he's 15 yeah it's a complex character and Jessica wasn't supposed to have a boy she was ordered by the Benny Gesserits to have daughters 
And that's one of the reasons why the Bene Gesserit, Gesserit mother is so angry with her because Lady Jessica broke their pact and decided to have a chi- a boy child with Leto. And keep in mind, Leto, she's Leto's concubine. She's not his wife. So that it's part of an arrangement for him to produce heirs. And Lady Jessica took it upon herself to try and create, you know, what they end up calling the one with Paul. Not telling him yet. Kwaizat's Hadarak. Yeah, which is like a, a messiah-like figure. The ultimate version of a human being who can um, bridge the gap between space and time. And as she says to Paul, the Bene Gesserit have been carefully cross crossing bloodlines to come to the final moment of creating this perfect hu- uh, uh, human being. So the Bene Gesserit will talk about for a little bit, are a pseudo-religious organization of all women spies, nuns, scientists, theologians who use genetic experimentation, galactic political interference, and religious engineering to further their own agenda of ascending the human race with the advent of their chosen one, the Kwisatz Haderach. The Advent Gesserit are a sisterhood. The Reverend Mothers are basically like the top class of this of this group of the sisterhood. They're they operate in the shadows and control the politics of the entire empire. They work with the houses. They work with the emperor. Their powers include the voice, which we talked about earlier, weirding way, which is their combat. That's why Lady Jessica is highly skilled in hand-to-hand combat and can even best Stilgar, who's a, been a warrior his entire life. They have great skills at detecting truth and lies, internal body control. Like we said, Lady Jessica can produce, can decide what gender the child inside her womb is going to be whether it be a boy or a girl she she breaks protocol and gives birth to a boy they can also do all sorts of other things like she can lower her heartbeat to like one beat a, a minute to to keep her in a super state of like com- like conscious com- comatosis like they do that when they're trapped in the desert in the book all sorts of stuff but the Bang Jesuit have been for thousands of years controlling the, the genetic lineage of all major houses in the empire and for for these families like so lady jessica she's part of these controlled bloodlines and she's supposed to create a a daughter with leto that was her task was to go to leto you were supposed to be his concubine and give birth to a daughter but she because out of love for leto and leto wanted a boy for part of the reasons why she made a boy she wanted to give leto a boy a son because she loved him she wasn't supposed to fall in love with leto but she did and also maybe a little arrogantly lady jessica probably thought that maybe i can be the one maybe i've had some sort of vision where i give birth to the prophesied kwisatz haderach maybe i am the one to do that and so that's like anthony said why the Benny jesuit and the Re- reverend mother are so upset with lady jessica because she was supposed to produce a daughter because the next generation was supposed to be the kwisatz haderach and what's really cool is that Charlotte Rampling, who plays the Reverend Mother in this film, she was actually cast as Lady Jessica in uh, Jodorowsky's Dune adaptation. Oh, which, the one that didn't get made, Yeah, right? the one that didn't get made. So she's actually been a fan of Dune for a very long time. She's actually one of the most accomplished actors in Europe. Um, she's stage and theater in, in film, just like a gigantic uh, acting icon. And actually, Charlotte Rampling was the actor... Timothy Chalamet was most nervous to do a scene with because he looked up to her so much. I'm sure being like, because he does, he did so much play work, stage work before a lot of his film acting. I'm sure he really like dove into her work, her body of work on the stage. 
but she's really one of the most talented actors alive. And I think she was just, it was so great to see her in this role because the Reverend Mother, she's like fear. She looks old and incapable, but she's so strong and fierce and commanding. And Charlotte Rampling, being such a great actor, she, they weren't sure how to portray the voice um, sound effects wise. And so they always knew um, while filming, well, we'll just have the actor say the lines and then we'll do it in post production, whatever kind of effects we want to do to the voices to create the effect of what the voice sounds like. But apparently, Charlotte Rampling was like performing the voice on set and they used her performance of the voice as the main like um, inspiration for how they would eventually turn the voice into an uh, audio effect. Yeah, and I love the way that Denis interpreted the voice. It's different than the Lynch version, but in this, it, he puts you in the shoes of the victim of the voice. Like when she uses the voice on Paul, when Jessica brings him to her in the middle of the night, and he, we just like he closes his eyes and he like wakes, opens his eyes and he's at the knees of the Reverend Mother. Like he just traveled the entire distance in less than a second. We just see him like he's. Like almost like teleported there because mentally that's what he's seeing, and then he just falls to his knee. And also, I like so the scene with Jessica and Paul having breakfast, and she she tells him to try and use the voice, and he tries, and she gets a vision of her handing him the glass. But then when she comes to her, her senses and she sees the glass never moves, so he, that shows that he's almost got it. Uh, he has the intention there, but he hasn't. He doesn't have the command to make the person actually do the act. Not fully. Yeah, he's getting there, but again, yeah. he's still young, and like she says, it takes many years to develop the Benny Gesserit skills. And one of the best scenes in the entire movie is the Gom Jabbar scene, and this is when the Reverend Mother is brought. Paul is brought to the Reverend Mother by Jessica in the middle of the night, and this is a test that all members of the Benny Gesserit have to go through in their training. And the whole point of this test is to find out if Paul is human. And so you have to put your hand in the box, obviously, and you feel intense pain. It feels He feels so much pain that it, it seems like his hand's burning to a crisp. And they do a great job visually of making us understand what Paul's feeling inside the box. Chalamet the, does a great job performing. The, the range of acting yeah. in the scene by Timmy was astounding. There's like nine different moods and emotions he's a feeling yeah. in like less than a minute. It's incredible. And the Gamjabar is a poison needle that will result in instantaneous death if he pulls his hand from the box and the point is if he pulls his hand from the box i mean if he keeps his hand in the box and maintains his composure and can suffer through it then he's human but a non-human person would pull their hand or gnaw their hand off a non-human being would gnaw their hand off or pull their hand out of the box mm -hmm. just like in, like she says an animal would gnaw its hand off because it's like not she, human she says he wields too much power because he could be the quiet Hotterock. And so the interesting interesting thing about Paul, in addition to everything we've talked about, is the possibility and potential that he's the Kwisatz Hotterock, but also the possibility that he's the Lisan Al-Gaib. Now, the Lisan Al-Gaib is another prophesied path that Paul Atreides has in the world of Dune, and that is a Messiah-like figure in the world of Fremen culture on Dune, who will lead them to paradise and create Dune and Arrakis into a paradise of water and lushness and forests and vegetation. And we it, get, get signs of that at the near the second half of the film. Yeah, so it, it's interesting where Paul's so special, such a special person that he has two prophesied paths and they become intertwined in a way. And because he's, 
because Jessica went out of protocol and the Kwisatz Haderach came a, a generation too early, he more likely is going in the Lisan Al-Gaib direction with the combination of all these powers and abilities he, ha- he has. And maybe later on in the Dune lore, you'll, we find out who the Kwisatz Haderach truly is if it's not him. Mm-hmm. And I um, think if you've read the book, <laughs> I think some of my I think my favorite sets are on Caladan, um, the interiors of, of the Caladan like uh, fortress. Um, Especially that Gom Jabbar scene, that room is just like magnificent. Um, all the hallways, these massive hallways, and uh, like Paul's bedroom. And what I really love is the lighting that they used. Um, Greg Frazier, the cinematographer, his team did a phenomenal job lighting this film because so the film was shot digitally, and then he um, he transferred it to film to get the grain in film look, and then he put it back on digital. But it was filmed digitally. Hence, like, the sharpness. And the lighting, you would think, like, given, like, a like these, like, castle-like environments, you would expect to see, like, flames and fires everywhere, but you don't. Instead, you see um, these balanced lights, very minimalist lights, very dim, and also, like, this, like, floating LED orb, which I really love. Glow globes. Glow globes. And go globes? Glow globes. Yeah, glow globes. Go-gurts. <laughs> <laughs> no, go globes are the toy I was thinking of. <laughs> no, I think it's a glow globe. No, I'm kidding. Uh, and I, I love these these globes that follow them around. But also, like Greg Fraser, he, he placed these like he LED lights. He, he hid them inside of like the walls and the structures of the sets, like so that it's like this just like smooth balanced light, just very subtle along like the the walls or or the ceilings and stuff. And I think it's just a brilliant way of showing the technology. Like they're not using fire for light, even though it's such a high society. Like we're so advanced with technology, even though technology is mainly organic, they're still using tech lighting like that, as opposed to having to light fires everywhere. I think that's just such a great touch with the production design for Caladan. Yeah, it's just a part of Dune. Like the glow globes are always in rooms floating around, and like this. This technology of suspensor technology, anti gravity technology, which a lot of a lot of objects use. Baron uses and Baron Harkonnen yeah. uses to keep his big ass up in the air. <laughs> <laughs> his rhino ass up. <laughs> <laughs> but let's stay on House Atreides and talk about some of their great allies and soldiers and People like Duncan Idaho. <laughs> I was like, I mean, we're, I mean, I mean we're yes. <laughs> people and places and things. Sometimes I start a sentence and I don't know where it's gonna go. Peeps, <laughs> homies. Don't ever tell anyone or do anything to anybody for any reason ever, ever. <laughs> the office. All right, Duncan Idaho played so well by Jason Momoa is the Atreides swordmaster, a diplomat and one of the greatest warriors in the universe he is universally feared by all people in the galaxy in the known universe Jason Momoa I think perfectly captures Duncan Idaho Uh, in the early draft it features a sequence of Duncan traveling to Arrakis and making contact with the Fremen they actually shot a bunch of sequences of Idaho on Arrakis, like, hunting them out. It's really cool. Unfortunately, he didn't make the cut because the movie would have been a little too long, probably. Yeah, and there's a dropship sequence where he jumped He jumped out of his ship and literally, like, dove into the atmosphere of Arrakis and landed. And floats down because that's, like, the technology. Like, when the starter car floating down immense heights, 
that's suspensor technology, anti-gravitational technology. And Duncan, I know, yeah, like Andy said, they ju- they shot him like dive bombing out of a plane and yeah. like slowly landing on Arrakis by himself. It's too bad we didn't see that. Yeah, but that it, it, it works better without seeing him do because that's not on the book. It. Yeah. It's not on the book, and it, it works better just seeing visions of him instead. Yeah. And you know, Idaho is the fiercest warrior in the universe, and he's he's very loyal to House Atreides, very loyal to Paul. As we see, after he he finds Paul and Jessica, he immediately calls him his duke because he will forever serve the Atreides. And also we have Gurney Halick, who is another instructor of of Paul's, um, another warrior and also a poet, musician. He's always reading literature and spouting out these great lines of either poetry or lyrics from songs. And I think that Josh Brolin, he's so personable. He was actually played by Patrick Stewart in the Lynch film. Um, but I think that Josh exudes a combination of strength and artistry really well and also he plays this instrument in the book it's they the i balance said the ballast said uh i think they cut the scene where he, he plays a song and sings um it would have been nice to see it but also we don't need it yeah but also he's a great influence and another great uh instructor and male icon for paul to look up to in his childhood denis replaced that with just poetry some lines here and there because gurney's always saying quotes from songs or poems in the books as well but the ballast scene like it's all over the books like gurney is known for singing all the time singing and playing he's a master at the ballast as well as being a master a weapons master and tactician and overall kind of like a general to the atreides in toledo and gurney like duncan is loyal to house atreides he will always be loyal to House Atreides for his entire life. And, you know, on during the attack, we see how great of a leader he is as he leads his men into battle, going full charge with me against the the um, Harkonnen and Sardaukar armies. When, I love when the um, Harkonnen ships are lowering. He's like, let's go. Let's go. He's like, I don't care. Let's do this. Yeah, but Gurney's, like you said, Josh gives a great, great presence as Gurney Halleck, and he's an awesome actor. And, this is the second time he's worked with the need. Obviously, yeah, Sicario, Sicario, yeah. But I'm, sh- I'm sure they have a great working relationship. And then we have uh, Mentat uh, Tufir Hawat, who is uh, the human computer for the Atreides. He, he's a really personable, charming man. Um, obviously, Paul looks up to him as well and welcomes him. Like when they land on Arrakis, he's so happy to see him. And, you know, the, the Mentats, they're not just used for the calculations, but also for political strategy as well. Because they have so much knowledge and information inside their minds, they can lead people like Leto and the Baron. They can lead them right in the best directions possible in terms of their political uh, functions. He's played and he's played by Stephen McKinley Henderson. And Thurfer is a really interesting character, and I love the concept of Mentats. Well, I'm sure we'll get more of them in part two. There's a lot more of, of Thurfer in the first book in, than in the first movie, obviously. But again, time constraints. Great character, obviously. But Thurfer, he, what's really interesting about him is he calculated and projected that there's a lot more Fremen on Arrakis than Baron Harkonnen ever thought. Baron Harkonnen thought there was like a 10,000 or less um, Fremen. 15,000? 15,000. 50,000 okay, 50,000. Sorry. But still Don't, a lot less than what A lot less are. than what Thurfer predicted to be millions. Millions of Fremen, which means desert power on this planet. But Thurfer did fail... Later, when he didn't find the assassin hiding in the walls who sent that hunter-seeker after Paul, which almost killed him, but because Paul is highly trained, he knew exactly what to do and was able to stop the the um, hunter-seeker. hunter-seeker from killing mapes. I don't know about you all, but if I was in a siege 
as a Fremen, I'd be a little concerned about my grooming needs. So I would have to hop on over to manscaped.com and use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout to get 20% off my Lawnmower 4.0 groomer as well as some free shipping worldwide. Manscaped also just launched their Ultra Premium Collection, which is an ultimate wet goods bundle, including deodorant, body wash, two-in-one shampoo conditioner, hydrating body spray, and a free set of Manscaped lip balm. Manscaped is taking care of all of your grooming and day-to-day needs, guys. So hop on manscaped.com, use our coupon code today, Raiders of the Lost. Help keep the lights on for the show, and you'll get free shipping and 20% off. Thanks so much for tuning in. Warner Brothers made some amazing posters for Dune. Some of these are available at movieposters.com. James has one right there on his set. I think it's really great, the color scheme. Head on over to movieposters.com and use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. They have a gigantic selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable at their arsenal, as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, everything you need for your poster needs. Our set is actually decorated with a bunch of these amazing posters. I got I got the Joker from The Dark Knight right here. James has The Hateful Eight and Psycho. I got The Grey Escape, Boogie Nights, Color of Money. They got everything. Again, head on over to movieposters.com and use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. And then we have uh, Dr. Yue, who is the personal physician to the Atreides family. Oh, and also one quick thing about Thurfer also, he's a master of assassins in the book. Oh, nice. Which is pretty cool. He's, not, he's more than just a mentor. Oh, that's cool. And Dr. Yue obviously becomes the the betrayal, the betrayer of House Atreides. He's the one who lowers the shields, jams their comms, allows the Harkonnens to arrive unannounced and undetected for their full-blown attack on uh, Harkonnen City. And he is the reason why Atreides falls, House Atreides falls. <clears throat> now, how about... House Harkonnen time? Oh, yeah, let's go. House Harkonnen. So the Harkonnens, I like to compare, if, if you've seen Game of Thrones, Harkonnens are kind of like the Lannisters, and you could say Atreides are like the Starks in a way. Would you agree with that? Sort of. I would say the Harkonnens are more like the um, the Ironborns. Okay, the They're Ironborns. They're more brutal. Yeah, okay, more, yeah. Yeah, more brutal. But yeah. political savvy. Yeah, yeah. Like but uh, extremely Lannisters. wealthy like the Lannisters. Yeah. And so their home planet is Getty Prime, and they be- they are the most wealthy of all houses, and they became that by controlling Dune and the Spice for so long and creating vast um, reserves of it and then raising the price of Melange and Spice and just becoming filthy rich off of it. And... They're a heavily industrialized planet with a low photosynthetic potential, so they are most famous for their underhand and sinister political tactics. And for an ancient feud, it maintained with the great houses like House Atreides. They've been at each other's throats for centuries. Even uh, Harkin and Baron Harkonnen says that to Leto, that they've been at war for centuries. In addition, Harkonnens have a reputation for ambition, malevolence, hatred, and brutality. Um, what else do we got What's here? What's also interesting is in the novel and even in the first Dune film, the original, um, Harkonnens have, they all have red hair. But I think that it can be a little silly looking. Yeah. So I think Denis wisely just said, let's just make them all bald. And, and so all, pale. Yeah, all the Harkonnens are bald and pale, which I think looks much more terrifying because it kind of looks like an entire race of humans without any hair. It looks kind of like this, like 
they're like they don't less look human. human. Like yeah. Gurney says, they're not human. They're yeah. brutal. They're brutal. <laughs> now, House Harkonnen built its power on maximizing production output and minimizing production expenses by ignoring economically ethical behavior on the planet Arrakis. So basically, destroying it and depleting it of all of its resources of melange and ruling from fear and terror. That's all the Fremen have known is death and fear and pain from the Harkonnens. That's why they're not expecting anything different from their next oppressors. And the Harkonnens, because of their control on the spice, have become wealthier than the emperor of the goddamn universe himself, which is crazy. And which is how they're able to afford the Sardu Corps for, the, for their attack. And not just afford the Sardu Corps, but afford all the space travel, because that's why Leto asks uh, Thur for like, the cost of just sending the, the, the seal of the change, or what's it called again? The, um, the Herald of the, the Herald change. of the Change, which is just a formality, but like the it was immense fortunes just to send that ship to Caladan to have them seal uh, put their seal on that. Yeah, and the Harkonnens, so they they they're to, they're ordered to leave by Iraq and Arrakis by the Emperor, and they also set the Atreides up to fail. Fail, for example, faulty equipment. Um, many of the harvesting uh, silos are either missing or they don't function properly. So. The Atreides are left with equipment that doesn't function. In the spice harvester, like when that fails, that's a great example of what they left them in. And that's an amazing sequence because not only do we see a sandworm in an attack on the spice harvester, but we also see great great leadership from Leto. And we also get to see the first exposure of Paul to an intense amount of spice. And and he says that one line like, "I, I I know your footsteps, old man, something like that. Yeah. Which is because he's he's talking to Shai Halud. Also, <clears throat> we just get a tease of the worm, which just I think a, was smart. A little tease. We just see its mouth. And then I thought it was really smart by Denis. He doesn't show the full size and scale of the sandworms until we're in the third act of the film. So just teasing it, giving us an idea of just a hint of the scope of the size of them. And then Baron Harkonnen is the leader of Getty Prime, which is their planet, and played by the excellent Stellan Skarsgård. He's honestly like the only choice to play Baron. Uh, and Baron is like this gigantic, disturbing, ruthless leader. Um, he's described to be like a, like rhino-like in his figure. Um, just enormous. and Not uh, just enormously yeah. fat, but, but also like enormously strong. strong. Yeah, like his legs and arms are just like massive. Because he, he actually cuts um, Dr. Yue's head off. It's it's subtle. The, the, he keeps it in the corner of the frame, but it looks like he just slits his throat. But he actually, when they cut to the wide shot, he drops his head. Like he cut his head off, no problem, with a just with a small knife. Yeah, you can see he's just like got these huge bulging muscles, which is like I think Denis and the production designers and concept artists just wanted to show the strength and brutality of Harkonnens. Yeah, and even Dave Bautista as Beast Robin uh, exemplifies that quality as well. And Robin is his nephew. Yeah, and I think that they're terrific. Dave Bautista has really come into his own as an actor. And I think Denis understands he can be really useful in certain kinds of roles. Like, he's great as that as that um, character, um, Sapper, in Blade Runner 2049, in, at the Replicant. And he's great in this role as Robin. And great as Drax. Yeah. And he's not in a ton of the movie, but he gets enough in there where we get to see how brutal the Harkonnens are. And the Baron, he has this 
basso voice, this deep voice. He's gross in a lot of ways, and he uses that anti-gravity device known as suspensors to support his weight, and he just floats along, basically. Again, Stellan Sarsgaard was amazing. He sat through seven hours of makeup every day to become the Baron. He wanted to do that, though. Yeah, he was when he first was contacted by Denis, he's like, are you going to CGI me? And then Denis like, no, we're going to do it for real. He's like, okay, count me in. And the Baron, before he kills Leto, he says this line. He's, obviously, he's eating his food at the table while while Leto is, is basically paralyzed. He says that line, you have a wonderful kitchen, cousin. And so he says cousin because this is alluding to the thousands of years of Benny Jesuit lineage planning because all of the houses that basically their blood is all connected because they're creating the perfect like they're creating superior beings you could say that's basically what Paul is and with the with suspensors it's you could say that I guarantee the Baron never even takes a step on his own it's it's always probably not suspensors probably you know what I mean I, I think it's really fascinating and I love the attack scene when Leto. It's tragic when Leto poisons the room, and and the Baron's the only one to survive. And then the uh, the crew shows up to to clean the air, and then and to dispose of the bodies, and they find the Baron like on the ceiling, like some kind of monster, like barely survived. It's mm-hmm. amazing. And then uh, Peter V. Peter De Vries is the Mentat that works for the Harkonnens, and he meets his demise from that poison, just like everybody except for the Baron. And now, before Piter, I think it's Piter, before Piter dies and and before the poisoning, we have a scene with the Baron, Piter, and the Reverend Mother, and we get a little tease at an invasion or a betrayal of the Atreides. So basically, we find out that the Emperor... And the Harkonnens have devised a trap for the Atreides to, after the Harkonnens pull out, the Atreides will go there. And then basically the Emperor will look the other way while he gives part of his army to the Harkonnens to go and attack and destroy all of the Atreides to end their entire line and end House Atreides on Arrakis. And the Reverend Mother... Since they work politically, they are not morally right all the time. They're letting it happen as long as they don't kill Jessica or Paul. And the Baron smartly lies and says they're not going to harm them or kill them, but they're going to give them to the desert. Yeah, yeah. and the desert eats the weak. Because they say you could – because you can face a truthsayer, and a truthsayer is a highly trained Benny Jesuit reverend mother who can tell whether or not you were lying or not. And so that's how they basically figure out – that's like like court proceedings is with truth sayers. That's yeah, like the goblin in Deathly Hallows when they make that deal. Kind of. He says, I didn't say I'd get you out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like a trick. Yeah, yeah. That, the Baron. Exactly. And so he assumes that the desert will kill them because the desert kills the weak. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk about the Stardukar? Yes. So the planet Seleucia Secundus, which is – it's a prison planet, and it's where men are, are put to the imprisonment and – it's a brutal prison, the worst conditions imaginable, and the power, the most powerful ones who survive their imprisonment, they are the ones who are trained to become Sardaukar warriors. So they're some of the most ruthless warriors in the entire universe. And the Sardaukar are the personal army of the Emperor himself. And there, I can't wait to see the Emperor. Yeah, me neither. I'm I, so I can't wait to see the casting for that yeah. and, and Aralan and all yeah. sorts of characters. Uh, Alia, can't wait to see who gets cast for that. Um, their suits are really interesting. They're part spacesuit, part armor. This allows them to sp- leap from space to planet. And we can assume when we see the starter car, you know, like fo- dropping in, they had just probably before they looked over that that opening they'd probably just fallen from a spaceship which is really really cool and crazy set design i mean when we go to the their planet 
and the Sardaukar army is being prepared with their their legions or the battalions are being prepared and they're all lined up and then we see you know those those crucified prisoners who are being bled upside down upside down and then what seem to be like priest-like figures are are taking the blood and blessing each Sardaukar warrior like as if baptizing them with the blood it's crazy. It's amazing. Nuts. It's like very close to radar territory. And then things happen really quickly. It's it's very quick when they leave Caladan and then get to Arrakis. On the on the book, it's like a flip of a page. And then it's real quick when the invasion starts and the Harkonnens take over and Yue betrays them. He poisons. He paralyzes Leto. Uh, he puts the false tooth with poison in there to allow him to kill the Harkonnen or hope to kill him because they had captured and imprisoned his wife and he's trying to get her free. But the Harkonnens just take over House Atreides and destroy and kill everyone. And J- Jessica and Paul, they get captured because they have been given sleeping pills by UA. So uh, Paul, at least, so Paul wakes up in the ornithopter, like where the yeah, hell? Yeah, he's am like I? he's like slowly opening his eyes. Whereas Jessica happening. was awake, yeah. waiting for him to wake up. Um, and unfortunately, Leto dies, which is really tragic because yeah. he's a character that you really, really just love in just a mm. short amount of time. I think he's the most likable character in the movie. Maybe, yeah. yeah just... Or uh, Duncan Idaho, maybe. Yeah. Either one. Either one. I th- I either think... way. Yeah. Yeah. Either way. Either, either way. way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is a tragic scene because you think that because Leto's plan, it's like he doesn't just want to rule and gather wealth and, and mine spice. He wants to, you know, band together and team up and form a real alliance with the Fremen. And there was so much potential for what they could have done together. And so it's a tragedy just to see that all get blown to bits. That is very honorable. So Stilgar <laughs> yeah, says yeah. to him. <laughs> yeah. Because he's like, as long as I am here, you will not be hunted. Your sieges will be yours. And I and we I want to like form an alliance here. Yeah. And the attack is brutal. I mean, it's just insane. And I love the the design of all these ships. I love the the concept of these bombs, like these slow moving bombs that can slowly pierce through these the the shield generators of each ship and then blow them to bits. I don't believe those are in the book. Um those bombs. I think that Denim might have created those. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. But it's it's genius concept and you know Duncan escape and I love when Duncan like he just kills every dude that he comes across and then he 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 takes out a trio like nothing and then there's three other guys and he's like come on let's go they just run away they scare away let him take an ornithopter <laughs> it's great it's the ornithopters amazing. are the, i think it might be my favorite piece of technology in the movie because they're really interesting ships and they they practically built these like these are real ships except for the wings but the wings are are awesome because it seems like a like a a dragonfly or like or like flapping wings it seems very organic they're seems, inspired by birds yeah, it's, yeah it's very organic and connects us to like earth and even though earth in this dune universe has we don't know exactly what happened to it whether it was destroyed or it just doesn't exist anymore it was abandoned no one lives there anymore but it, it connects us as as audience members to earth because it reminds us of birds and insects and flies yeah so so that was actually technology that was trying that people were trying to invent for planes like 100 years ago but because it works for insects and for small birds like hummingbirds and like how if they flap wings then they they can fly and glide um but actually physically it's impossible up to a certain weight so like a, a dragonfly it can fly with its wings flapping because it's so light. But once you hit a certain amount of weight within the atmosphere, it becomes impossible to maintain uh, uh, some kind of structure or thing in the air. So it's actually an impossibility physics-wise, but it's still really cool to see. There's another character who's super important to this story, and that's Dr. Lee at Kynes. 
She is the judge of the change, played by Sharon Dunker Brewster, did a great job in this role. Um, it's an ambiguous character for a while. You don't know whose side Liet Kynes is on because the judge of the change, Liet's supposed to make sure that the tradies coming here were left with good equipment and like everything is okay and they can just take up spice production immediately. But, you know, the Atreides were left with scraps to work with for gathering spice. And, you know, then after the attack, Liet Kynes is kind of like, I have to keep my mouth shut. That's what I'm doing here. I'm not supposed to say anything. And then Paul tries to recruit her as a witness to in his defense by going to court basically against the Emperor. And she's like, you think they'll believe me and a boy? But Liet Kynes is a great character because we eventually learn that she's Fremen. You know, she's got the blue eyes, but she says, like, I'm welcome in Siege and Village at first. And so Paul's always confused, like, who are you to the Fremen? And, like, are you part, are you Fremen? Do you have the blue eyes because you're a Fremen? You know a lot about Fremen still suits. And we've learned that she is Fremen, she, but she, you know, she's a leader in the Fremen world. And I'm sure that she's obviously not happy to see innocent people get killed, but she, I don't think she tr truly cared about the fate of the Atreides. Um, like when they're attacked by the Harkonnens because she's a Fremen as well. And to her, from her sp perspective as a Fremen, like he was just another ruling class. Like I'm not, we're, we sh I have no need to like try and help them and aid them and assist them really. Well, she, yeah, because she says that line, like men like you yeah, come here after one, one after another. And yeah. like, it, what's it to us? But the thing with the Fremen, part of their culture is they, they have to hide to protect themselves. They don't want to be found. They want to be left alone. They want everyone in the universe to assume that there's no Fremen in the desert. There's just a couple Fremen so that they can be on their own, that they can live their lives in peace away from everyone else so that no one bothers them. And, and they can live on this planet, Dune and Arrakis, mostly away from Harkonnens, even if they're in control of the planet. No, the Harkonnens don't go in worm territory. They don't go where the sieges are. That's that's why Stilgar is so adamant when he meets with Leto. He's like, don't come into our sieges. Don't come looking for us. That was his main objective in that meeting, to tell them to stay away. Let us live our lives in peace in our sieges. But Liet Kynes does choose a side. She decides to, you know, help Paul and Jessica get away after they escape the first time from the Harkonnens and they're able to survive in the tent. And again, that great moment where Paul has his prescient vision and he's he's upset with Lady Jessica, with his mother, because to him, she turned him into a freak. He didn't want this. He has these crazy powers, these crazy visions, because, you know, Lady Jessica, again, uh, such a great character. She's so intelligent. She knows so many things, but maybe a little arrogant in thinking that she could produce the Kwisatz Haderach and having to put her son Paul through this, which no one could understand what it was going to be like. And I think that Leah Kynes helped them because of her experiences with Paul. Um, first of all, when she gives them the still suits to wear when they go check out the Harvester and she's adjusting everyone else's still suit, then she goes to Paul and he's put it on perfectly. And even put it on in a way which only an experienced Fremen would know how to put on. And then she says that line, like, he, he would, like, know your ways or something. As you do. As yeah. you do. Yeah, something like that. And then also, Paul reveals to her that he knows a lot about her past that only someone, like, who had abilities to, like, see into her mind would know. And so I think those two moments, 
really inspired her to really choose that side. And that brings up a clear distinction between the Quasar's Tartarok and the Lisan Al-Gaib, where the Quasar's Tartarok is just a one person. It's just a man, Benny Gesserit, a boy, Benny Gesserit. Whereas the Lisan Al-Gaib is not just a prophecy of the Messiah figure, but also the mother. Jessica is part of the Lisan Al-Gaib prophecy. That's why when Mapes gives her the Chris Knight, she weeps and she says, when you live with prophecy for so long, for so many years, when it becomes to start becoming true, it is a shock to the system. It's like if, if someone was Catholic and Jesus stood in front of them. Like, they'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap, it's Jesus! Jesus, bro, you're, you're moonwalking on water. <laughs> Whoa, this is crazy, so bro. That, so that's why she, like, screams hysterically right there. Yeah, so it's a... it's. She's part of the Lisan Al-Gaib prophecy and Messiah figure. Jessica is connected with Paul in that in that way. Exactly. And that's why um, I can't remember who says it, but someone says the mother and the son. I, I think it's it's I think it's when um, isn't that when they find the Fremen and they're about to battle? Maybe. Maybe. I think or, I think it was earlier during the um, when they get to Arrakis initially. I can't remember. I yeah, I can't remember. I haven't seen it in a couple we'll of weeks. We'll have to watch it again. Well, I'm going to watch it again <laughs> at some point. You know what's so great about this film? It's so immersive because I watched it yesterday for the third time um, to prepare because I hadn't seen it for two two or three months. Yeah, because I saw it in the re-release in IMAX yeah. that they did two weeks so ago. Was, I had to I had to refresh on it, and I was like, I was prepared. I was like, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna take notes in my phone while I watch it, and then like for the first ten minutes, I was like writing some notes down. I was like, okay, I'm, yeah, here we, nice, and then like. 40 minutes into the movie, I hadn't touched my phone again. I was like, I'm not going to take any notes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm just fucking watching it's this. It's one of those ones yeah. you just got to watch it. Yeah. You, gotta, you, gotta, you get more from it. Just I can't like, look away from it. I couldn't yeah. look away from it. It's a beautiful movie. Yeah. And let's see where we're at. So, and then Paul and Jessica, yeah, they hook up with Duncan Idaho. They go to Leah Kynes. She helps them escape after they're underground in the siege. Oh, I love, so I love this set of like this bunk. I, I believe so... It was a the initial plan to create a uh, a water rich environment for Arrakis. This is what all this uh, these structures are. This is what this equipment was initially built for. But then they abandoned it when the people years ago discovered how valuable the spice was. Then they were like, "Screw the water. We got the spice. Let's keep just focus on that." So they abandoned their plans to make this a water rich environment. Well, yes and no because that's in the book. It goes into more detail. Like you learn more about Leah Kynes, where that's Leah Kynes. He's like is like the chief science officer of the Fremen. And Liet's vision is to slowly generation, 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 build vegetation, turn Arrakis into a water environment. Even in the book, they have they have massive reserves, like underground lakes of water yeah, that yeah, they've been yeah. saving. So it's, it's a dream of them. They haven't completely abandoned it. I think that that's why Denise showed those plants is to show that they're they're working on it. That's like part of their vision is like why they have all these little plants here. That's what Duncan's looking at. He's like, look at all these little cute little, little baby garden. plants. And it's because they're trying to figure out vegetation that could grow in desert-like environments. And the book goes way more into detail. That's basically Liet Kind's mission with the Fremen. Exactly. And so a really terrific set is so when they're chatting and then the Fremen warriors are making coffee in that uh, big like warehouse um some some kind of structure. I don't know what it is, but it's just a giant warehouse, and it's got exposure exposed at the top, um, and it's got like these beams of some kind of structure in like in the in the open area. And the filmmakers they did such a great job practically building these sets. That's CGI. The ceiling it was CGI, but they actually you can see the shadows of the floor on the sand. 
you see the the shadows of the beams and it's like how how is that like the shadows there if they cgi the ceiling they just created these big tarps and they shaped the tarps in the shape of the structure with the beams and so that's how they created like the actual authentic shadows to what the set would have created in real life and that's just a great blend of the practicality of the lighting cinematography and production design to coincide with the stunning visuals created digitally it's just great filmmaking right yeah. there and then you know my favorite my, maybe my favorite shot is when the Sardu car are slowly falling down oh, yeah. right there and they're it's just like a dark background and their white suits are just so brightly lit and they're contrasted so well with the dark background it's just so beautiful yeah amazing it's hard to pick a favorite shot in this movie but this next sequence is so important so fast you know liette is talking to paul and jessica and duncan and then <clears throat> excuse me the starter cars start to invade the siege and duncan obviously sacrifices himself so that the three of them can escape in time um awesome combat sequence like yeah. jace momoa Let's does go. the combat so well in this movie he's he's such a good actor and action star for sure um but I love Paul is now that he's a Duke and he's got the ring on his finger. He's Duke Atreides now. He's starting to maybe accept that responsibility as as well as starting to accept maybe the Kwisak Tartarok, maybe the Lisan Al Gai prophecies a little more. At first, he 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 he, betray, he rejected it when he found out about the Kwisak Tartarok, like when the when the Reverend Mothers were pulling away from Atreides and, he, and Jessica sees him there in the rain he's like what's it mean and then he's like it's all I'm all part of a plan like I reject this I reject the Bene Gesserit. I don't want any of this but now he's starting to accept it and he's starting to use his intellect and he decides like what if I make a play for the throne for the empire of the universe because the emperor has daughters who aren't married yet and Leah's like you're gonna make a play for the throne you got some balls on you dude <laughs> <laughs> then he also then he, it also that scene actually offers proof that his visions can be truthful because he knows so much about Liet Kynes. He's starting to learn how to control them. Exactly. So like before all of his visions and even after this, they are uh, not true to what ends up happening in reality. But that's something where you can imagine he he had visions of her life um, just from interacting with her. He could probably they didn't need to show it um, just because he says it to us, but he clearly had visions about. Her past, um, her past lover, how he died. He probably saw images of her, of Liet holding him in while he died, stuff like that. So, his visions are both truthful and misleading. Yeah, and Liet Kynes unfortunately gets killed in this movie. She dies by being consumed by Shahalud, her one, sir, her also one stabbed in the back. Yeah, yeah, but she yeah. she gets eaten by the sandworm, yeah. which is epic. And that's how Liet Kynes dies. Similarly, in the book, he's on his own instead, but in the movie. Um, she takes the the uh, Sardaukar soldiers with her, but it's too it's unfortunate because she pulls out the hooks and she's yeah. about to ride a sandworm. It's like, oh my god! She's like calling it with the thumper, and then she decides, and then she uses her fist with the thumper. What's but what's really interesting about when Liet Kynes gets stabbed in the back by the Sardaukar in this movie is when the sword goes through her, water pours out of her suit and not blood. I think that's a real great great way for the filmmakers and for Denis to signify how, not only how important the water is to the Fremen, but how incredibly well the suits function at preserving water because her suit, you can assume, is full of water preserved from her body. Yeah, and that's why, like, Stilgar, when Jessica and Paul um, show up, the first thing he's, he's like, he's like, 
don't run. You don't want to waste your water. We're just, like, we need it. Yeah, we need it. He's <laughs> like, he's like, don't go anywhere, guys. Like, we're just gonna kill you and just take your water. But just, just don't just waste gonna, it. You're just gonna waste your precious water. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. That's the culture of the Fremen. Yeah, the water is the most valuable thing to them in the world. It's more valuable than than the spice. Yeah, and also, and then this sequence of Jessica and Paul traveling is just really fantastic. It's all practical locations, but what's really impressive is imagine all the footprints they had to erase digitally. Yeah, or maybe they, they, they yeah, or maybe they had some sort of broom. No, they they were cuz they just like um Jessica uh, Rebecca Ferguson and Shalomay like they're walking at a far distance and they got to do the shots like over and over again in the crew's footprints. So, um they actually developed a system where um the actors and crew would walk in one line mm-hmm. and so they would all they would all follow the same footpath to a location that way the CGI artists didn't have to erase footprints everywhere. Instead, they just had to erase erase like one row of footprints. They really thought of everything. Yeah, it's genius. And the second escape by Jessica and Paul is is even more thrilling than the first escape they have because they get to the ornithopter that Leah Kind showed them. They're in um and oh, d- d- let's not forget that Doctor Ua did help them by leaving them friend kits, which help them survive After he destroyed their After family. After he destroyed everything. So Thanks, doctor. Didn't leave them completely empty-handed. <laughs> you, you gave me a backpack. Thanks for the ring. <laughs> I'd rather have my dad. <laughs> and they lose they lose the, the starter car and the Harkonnens in a Soriolis storm, which is a crazy, what is it, like 600 mile per hour? 800. 800 mile per hour desert sandstorm, yeah. which in the books describes like we'll tear flesh to like to bone like we'll tear the flesh off your body until there's bones nothing but bones left on you like that's how intense Gross. they are yes yeah, cuz it's like little pebbles and rocks and sand just like like a like a sandblaster yeah at yeah. 800 miles per hour yeah. and what's really interesting this is where we get a vision of Jameis and of from Paul like we mentioned earlier and he yeah. takes he takes Jameis's advice where you just have to kind of just ride the storm you have to follow the, follow yeah you don't to, fight it cons- you have to be consumed by the energy and just it's kind of like a surfer riding the wave and just ride with it be water <laughs> be like water <laughs> bruce lee <laughs> and it's really i love the sequence of uh they rise up high enough and then they, they start gliding at the top of the storm really beautiful stunning cgi visuals it's some of my favorite images of the of the entire film and then but then they crash land Epic, epic crash. And like, it's like when they crash, you're like, where are the worms? <laughs> where are the freaking worms? Run! <laughs> and even, even Paul's like, once we hit the earth, you better start running, mom. Move your ass. <laughs> they do a good job at first, and, but eventually the worm catches up with them. And it's an epic chase scene of them trying to outrun the worm. And then the worm stops in front of Paul and Jessica. And. <laughs> But then a thumper in the distance draw, draws the worm away. But you really see the power of the worm and the vastness because the, they can grow up to 400 meters in length. And they're just enormous. And I love when Paul's looking into Shai Halud and you can see the heartbeat, like the thumping. It's, in, it's so intense. And then it moves away. And so they have to do the sand walk or they try to do the sand walk because worms are attracted to rhythmic movements. Patterns, yeah. So that's why you can't walk normally. You have to do the sand walk. Um but then you have, because the sandwalk emulates the sounds of normal desert activity. I'm surprised it never became a TikTok dance. I'm sure it did. Maybe. They should have done that for marketing. Maybe, I guess. That would have been a good idea. It's cooler than that, though. Oh, yeah, it's way cooler than a TikTok dance. Um, but then they eventually find the Fremen. And this is where we have the great challenge where um, they do get surrounded and somewhat attacked. But they but because Paul bested Jameis, 
Jameis is very upset, and they've all heard the prophecy that the Lisan al-Gaib is here on Arrakis, and they don't believe it. Chani doesn't believe it. Jameis doesn't believe it. They don't believe the prophecy. Stilgar probably doesn't believe it yet, but it's not until they fight that you know they all start to believe, like, oh, maybe he could be the Lisan al-Gaib. Yeah, because Paul, he seems to know what Jameis is going to do before he does it. Yeah. And, and also, Jameis questioned Stilgar's leadership because... Lady Jessica bested him as well. True. But so Paul doesn't defeat Jameis completely because of prescience visions. It's because Paul is, again, one of the most yeah. skilled warriors yeah. in the universe. Like he's so, he's just as good, if not. Duncan Idaho in later books calls Paul uh, the best warrior he ever met. Like he's better than Duncan. Spoilers. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to read book four of Dune. Come on, listening. <laughs> so Paul is the probably the greatest warrior in the Empire. It's a combination of that, but it's also an awkward fight because, one, Paul's never killed a man. Remember, he's 15 years old. He's never killed a person ever, especially in battle. He's never been in a real battle before of life and death. And also, Paul is used to shield fighting. There are no shields with the Fremen. They don't use shields because, as Liet Kine says, it's a death sentence in the in the, the worms desert. are attracted to it. The worms, not only are they attracted to it, but that puts them on a kill frenzy. They go crazy and kill everything in sight. Where are the shields? <laughs> so the Fremen don't use worm, don't use shields, and it's, it's a combination of Paul being hesitant to kill somebody and also being trained in fighting with shields, where he does that. He has to. It's like a dance, but also the slow blade going in, which. Part of one of the things that's like freaking Jameis out is he's besting him every time, asking to yield, but also there's like a slow blade going against him, you mm -hmm. know? And it's a really complicated choreography if you watch it. They do a really great job yeah. at it. But then he does get the better of Jameis and does, he just stabs right through him. And, you know, he he respects his death. Like he holds his hand in the same way that Jameis in his vision held his death when he was dying in his vision. Exactly. And so then we, they wrap him up immediately. Wrap him up tight, save oh, that and, water. And then we. this is a good scene because we finally get some more Javier. We also get Chani played by Zendaya, who's... I can't wait to see more of Chani in the next film. She's a major character in part two, don't worry. This is just the way the book is laid out. This is how the book was written. This is the story of Dune. It takes a while to get to Arrakis and then get to the Fremen and the sieges that you'll see in part two. And Zendaya's tremendous in this movie. You know, she has so much strength as a character and as an actor. She has such a great presence on camera. I think she's perfect, perfectly cast in this role. But I love how Chani's like, here, using my blade, it'd be a great honor for you to get killed yeah. with it. Like, Don't it, worry, it, he'll kill you quickly. You're not going to feel you're much pain. You're totally going to die, but <laughs> can you hold my knife when you do die? It'll be a great honor when you die with this knife. Quick selfie. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way of the Fremen. That's the culture. It would be a great honor for him to die because dying is different to Fremen than it is to other people in the universe. Also from the hand of a Chris knife as well. Exactly. Yeah. And wow. then uh, they uh, Fremen accept them, and they begin walking. And I think it was such a, a great ending shot because it's this trail of Fremen walking to what we can assume is going to be another siege. And um, then uh, Paul and Jessica, they see in the distance uh, a Fremen riding uh, on a worm. It looks to be a, a much smaller worm. Um, maybe. Like maybe a younger worm. Just cruising. I think it's just like the distance. Surfing. And it's also half under sand. Okay, I guess. Because the way that it... Yeah, it just seemed like the person standing on it, the scale of the person, it didn't seem like much taller than the person. Maybe there are different sizes yeah, I think worms. It, I think it's just a smaller worm. But also part of the... Like most of the worm is under the sand while yeah. they're riding it. Understood. Should, should we explain how that works or wait for them to see part two? Let's just wait for them to see part two. Yeah, you'll, you'll yeah. learn how they ride. Yeah, those, those, it's really interesting, yeah. but it's, it's pretty cool. 
And um, I think this, I, but I think the a great final shot by Denis, just showing these people on a journey walking, because the ride's not over yet, and the journey's just beginning. There's much more to do, and I think it was just a great metaphor for where the path of the story is going to take, keep going, and how this story is not concluded yet, and there's so much more to unveil, unveil, and for movies that don't have a conclusion in them like this one. It's just part one. This is, I think, the best part one of any duo of movies ever. A hundred percent. And it's just a really unbelievable, immense, monumental, groundbreaking film. Such an achievement. It's incredible. There's, there's one tiny little thing left I have to talk about. The teensy tiny little tiny. It's the little desert mouse. Like, what is oh, this yeah. little desert mouse? Oh, yeah. The first time we see it is when they get out in the morning when they leave the tent and well, we see it in the hologram. Oh yeah, we see it in the hologram. Or you're you're right with the uh, the uh, the root plants that the fremen grow, and then we see the desert mouse. Paul sees it for the first time in person when they leave the tent after they use this fremen sand technology to get out of out of the out of the dune. Sees this little desert mouse, and then there's another shot of the desert mouse when he's having a vision of Chani. And there's dialogue system like even a desert mouse can survive in the right conditions. And so what is the significance of this little desert mouse? You'll find out in part two. It's a very important meaning and it's a it's a symbolic image for Paul in his journey going forward. It is it is. So just remember the little desert mouse. You'll find out why it's in the film, why it's in the story and why it is of significance to Paul specifically going further. We also have some questions from fans if you want to answer them. Yeah, let's see what we got. Okay. We posed a few on Instagram. <clears throat> How? Okay. <laughs> what? Is there something you didn't like about the adaptation? It wasn't long enough. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> I wanted like eight hours. That's it. Why does Mapes scream at Jessica? We answered that. It's like she's like, it's as if she's seeing Jesus if yeah, she was if Catholic. Christic or. Muhammad, if you're Islamic or, you know. <laughs> Ryan Mulligan, is Timothy going to bulk up for part two? <laughs> no. He does. Well, I'm, actually, I don't want to say anything about part two. I'm not going <laughs> to. Okay, so Matt Holland, why did the um the little bug, so he means the hunter-seeker, when it was trying to kill Paul, why did it stop right in front of his eyeball instead of continuing forward? Okay, so hunter-seekers are assassination tools which are attracted to movement, and so since Paul has been trained in everything and he knows what hunter seeker is immediately when he sees it that's why he he immediately freezes when he sees it coming out of the wall and then he moves into that little led lighting in front of him to kind of try to hide himself and then it stops right in front of him because paul isn't moving a single molecule in his entire body so he's frozen his body completely this is part of benny jesuit training this is why he's able to do this obviously maybe timmy isn't completely perfectly still yeah, but it but, doesn't see him but imagine that paul isn't moving a single cell of his entire body because of his intense training it can't see him because he's not moving that's what hunter seekers are attracted to it's kind of like the t-rex in jurassic park right what are you guys most excited about for part two from song of joy um I'm, I'm excited to see the emperor yeah I'm, I'm excited to see who's being cast in yeah. roles specifically the emperor plus i don't want to say too many characters that aren't introduced yet there's a, a harken in that i can't wait to see who plays that character coming up soon uh sand uh, sandworm riding more yeah That'd more sandworms more of the fremen more of the sieges the yeah. whole movie is going to be a ton of fremen stuff and then obviously the big events in the movie this is from cody how many books are the movies going to follow so the first book is dune part 
one and Dune Part 2 movies. Then Denis, I've heard say he wants to make a third film, which I'm assuming will be Dune Messiah, which is the second book in the Dune Frank Herbert franchise. And also, Warner Brothers and HBO Max will be making Dune TV series. And the Benny Gesserit show will be first, which is going to be epic. I can't wait to see yeah. that. And Denis going to produce, exec produce, maybe write some, I think, but also I think he's going to direct some of the episodes as well. He'll probably direct the first two to create the style and tone of the fil- of the uh, series. Want to move on to some trivia? Let's do it. Composer Hans Zimmer is a massive fan of the novel Dune and loved it as a child. It was a dream of his to always make music for it. And so when this role came up to make music for Dune, he actually turned down working with his frequent co- collaborator, Christopher Nolan, on Tenet in order to score this film instead. David Lynch, director of the previous Dune in 1984, stated that he has zero interest in Dune 2021. He cited that his issues with the new movie have nothing to do with director Denis Villeneuve, but with his own painful memories of making the 1984 version. According to him, because it was a heartache for me, it was a failure and I didn't have final cut. I've told the story a billion times. It's not the film I wanted to make. I like certain parts of it very much, but it was a total failure for me. Cinematographer Greg Frazier revealed that though the film was originally shot digitally on the Ari Alexa LF, Villeneuve transferred the picture onto 35mm film and then rescanned the film back onto digital. For Dune, the scenes of the oceanic world Caladan were shot in Stand Landent, Norway, as well as also some parts in Big Bear, California. Much of the desert scenes on the desert world of Arrakis or Dune were shot in Jordan and Abu Dhabi in the Middle East. In an interview with Empire Magazine, director Denis Villeneuve described the year-long process that went into designing the massive sandworms, a.k.a. Shai Halut, the most iconic creatures of the Dune Saga. According to Denis, we talked about every little detail that would make such a beast possible, from the texture of the skin, to the way the mouth opens, to the system to eat its food in the sand. It was a year of work to design and to find the perfect shape that looked prehistoric enough. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Dune. I feel like there's still so much more to talk about, but I mean, we that was I over feel like two we hours. Covered everything. Yeah. I mean, besides just production design, costume, wardrobe, makeup, everything about this movie is top tier filmmaking, incredible artistry. What an achievement by Denis Villeneuve and his entire team and cast and production and crew. One of the best movies of the last five years, easily the best movie of 2021. Cannot wait for part two. And if you only saw this movie once and were maybe a little confused or you haven't seen it yet, we recommend you either watch it again or definitely watch it for your first time. It is astounding. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.